Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Tuesday, March 13th, 2018, starting at 1.12 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 148th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kieran LeGrice about the concept of synchronicity as formulated by Carl Jung and its use in modern times as an explanatory principle for astrology. Uh, hi, Kieran. Welcome to the show. Hello, Chris. Thank you for, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be, to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I, um, you are the, the, one of the co-authors of the recent book, Young on Astrology, which was the subject of, of an episode with your co-author, uh, in January. And I had a great d- discussion with Saffron Rossi about that book, but I wanted to have you on in order to talk about one of your major contributions to that book, which was a major, um, piece where you wrote an introduction to the section dealing with Jung's views on astrology, where you did a really good job of breaking down um, his his views on that topic. And so I thought that would be a good subject for our discussion today. Yeah, great. I mean, the, the way uh, Saffron and I uh, approached the project, we, we edited the book, uh, co-edited. So it's mainly Jung, uh, as you will have heard from Saffron, it's mainly Jung's own writing. And then we did introductions to the four main sections of the book. Um, and part four, as you said, was uh, covers Jung's various explanations of astrology, his attempts to understand how astrology works. Uh, so I wrote the, the introduction to that. And uh, in, in the course of putting together the material, uh, it occurred to me that there are at least seven somewhat distinct ways that Jung uh, actually attempts to, to to theoretically understand how astrology might work. So that's what's included there in, in that part of the book, these seven uh, dif- different but overlapping explanations. Sure. And I, and I just thought that was a brilliant um, breakdown and analysis of his views and how his views sometimes changed or sometimes overlapped or sometimes even contradicted views that he had d- at different points in his life. So yeah, so I want to go over that today. But first, maybe we should start at the beginning and just uh, I wanted to introduce you to my audience. So could you tell me a little bit about your your background and, and your training in terms of both academically and in terms of astrology? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, they overlap uh, quite considerably. I, I first got into astrology when I was uh, 16, uh, the summer before I turned 17. Uh, and around the same time, I started reading Carl Jung. So this was um, 1989. Um, my undergrad degree then uh, was in philosophy and psychology. That was at the University of Leeds uh, in England. Um, but I, I think like many people who study academic psychology, the, you, one finds that there's not really a lot of space uh, in the curriculum for depth psychology, sure. Freud or Jung. So that was kind of disappointing to me, but uh, I was pursuing my studies of Jung privately outside of um, my uh, undergrad studies. And so, yeah, that was a real spiritual awakening for me, I guess, at the time when I got into astrology, you know, like I was meditating and reading Alan Watts and Paramahansa Yogananda and all those kinds of uh, uh, thinkers. So it, it, my my own introduction to astrology came alongside my uh, my, my own kind of um, the beginning of my spiritual path, I suppose. 
and Jung has been a, a very influential part of that. So yeah, so that's that was my beginning, and then um, when I got towards my late twenties, um, turned thirty, I really wanted to do graduate studies uh, in something something to do with Jung or, or transpersonal psychology, uh, and I eventually ended up going to San Francisco uh, to study under Richard Tarnas uh, and a number of other prominent scholars uh, at the California Institute of Integral Studies. So before that, if I just go back a little bit, I in my late 20s, I, I took it upon myself to try to formulate my own worldview because I'd been using astrology through my 20s, and yet I knew that in terms of the, the dominant understandings of the nature of reality, that it was just impossible to to try to account for astrology. Yet I knew it was true. I knew that it had validity. You know, I'd, I'd done readings. I'd used it to uh, illuminate my own life over the years. So I felt this kind of dissonance, and, and I wanted to try to articulate a worldview in which astrology would make more sense. Uh, this was as much for me as for, for anything else. So I began taking notes, uh, copious notes, actually. Um, you know, I was listening to Joseph Campbell, Power of Myth videos, reading Young again, and, and I really got into the new paradigm sciences around that time, too. So what began as a, a personal project to articulate a worldview then evolved into a book. Um, so I had this idea that I, I was going to write a book. Um, originally, it was going to be called The Astrological Matrix, and it eventually became, years later, The Archetypal Cosmos. So I, I, I was kind of steeped in uh, the, the theoretical understanding of astrology and grappling with, with these issues uh, at that time. And then I came across Richard Tarnas's work, The Passion of the Western Mind, is, is Tarnas's uh, historical narrative of the evolution of the, uh, the dominant ideas in the Western worldview from the ancient Greeks through to uh, the postmodern. And I was really struck by that. I knew, I knew Tarnas uh, was also an astrologer, and obviously it's uh, pretty rare to find uh, such an erudite um, academic who's also uh, interested in astrology and, and practices astrology. So I, I'd happened across Tarnas's Prometheus the Awakener around about the same time. So I had these, these two uh, books by, by Tarnas and I just felt that I wanted to study with him and that would be the, um, the, the logical move for me. So 2004 and I, I went to, I moved to San Francisco and I, I did a, a master's degree in, a program called Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness. And that, that was at uh, CIS? Yeah, that's right. Uh, CIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where, uh, where Rick, Rick Tarnas is a, a professor in that program. That's really interesting timing, because that's right about the time that his book, his, his major work on astrology came out, Cosmos and Psyche, around 2005, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty exciting time to be there for that reason, you know, because Rick was... Uh, giving classes on archetypal astrology. Um, I think the, the class that really had the biggest influence on me was called Archetypes, Art and Culture. Um, and so around that time, he was presenting this material in classes and finishing the, uh, the final work on Cosmos and Psyche. So yeah, it was very exciting to see that uh, appear in 2006. Uh, and then I went back uh, again to San Francisco because I've been living in the UK 
uh, on and off between uh, periods in America. So I went back to San Francisco in 2007 to do a PhD in the same program, in the same field. Um, and that's where I, I kind of developed the thesis I'd begun in my early writing on the archetypal cosmos, and it, you know, it became my, my doctoral dissertation. And then later became a book. So I, you know, I was lucky enough to be enriched by uh, all the studies I did with Rictanus and other scholars uh, at CIES, and that kind of informed and illuminated what I'd been working on before that. Okay, brilliant. And the Archetypal Cosmos was published in 2011, right? Yes, yeah, I think it was. Um, so that was, you know, I got my PhD in 2009 and i'd done a, a little bit of teaching then in 2010 at cis so yeah i think i think it came out in, in 2011 um and then you were, and, you were also part of the group that founded the archive journal around like 2009 right yes that's right yeah uh, so there was a lot happening at the time um yeah there's uh, another guy there called rod o'neill who also had his phd uh in the philosophy cosmology and consciousness program he he um, graduated just before me, and and he'd written too on archetypal astrology. He'd done this big uh, historical analysis of uh, New England Puritanism in terms of outer planet uh, transits. Uh, so yeah, we collaborated with um, uh, another guy called Bill Street, who'd also studied in the program, and we launched the journal. I think the first issue came out in two thousand and nine. I think you're right, and then we produced more or less one issue a year for the next three years of so four issues in total uh, under my uh, editorship so yeah there was there was a lot happening in the field at the time you see it was very new and i, th- I think cosmos and psyche had this catalytic catalytic effect and, um, and the archive journal was a, a natural follow-on in, in many ways from from rick's publication yeah it's there was a real sense at the time that you guys were attempting to, to push and to create a new uh sort of discipline uh, in terms of that specific formulation of astrology and cosmology and, and mythology and everything else in in a sort of academically um, not suitable but academically sort of friendly format in some sense yeah yeah I think that's right I mean it's always somewhat challenging if you're trying to launch an academic journal on astrology given the, the views that prevail uh, in many parts of academia towards astrology but we felt we wanted to uh, aspire for rigor uh, and a kind of empiricism that I, I think astrology can, could benefit from. Um, you know, establishing evidence for specific world transit correlations, for instance, uh, as Rick had done in Cosmos and Psyche. Um, so there was that dimension to the journal, and also uh, a focus on on theory uh, and further articulating how it might be that. Uh, uh, planets could be related to archetypes in, in the depths of the human psyche, which uh, is, you know, that's an assumption that, that informs archetypal astrology uh, and, and archetypal cosmology is the, the name we gave to the, the bigger field that includes the theory as well as the practice of astrology. Because um, I think that assumption for many people is a huge stumbling block when it comes to engaging with astrology. You know, people think, well, you know, how on earth can, a distant planet have any relationship to the the depths of my inner world, and in in, in the normal way of thinking, it, it does seem incomprehensible. Um, so maybe we'll get to this when we uh, discuss Young's explanations. But that that was my part of my own project to try to make that relationship 
which is uh, you know has it's demonstrable we you can look at world transit and you can see the correlation but i wanted to try to understand it theoretically right well i think i think that provides a good segue then into our main topic today which is so often for the most part astrologers oftentimes are, are just practitioners who are working with the sort of outcome or the end result of some sort of phenomenon that is not clearly that the the mechanism behind it is not clearly defined or or often very well understood but occasionally you will have different sort of major thinkers in the field of astrology attempt to wrestle with the question of how does astrology work or or why does this work because most normal educated people when they come across something like astrology as you said will just immediately dismiss it out of hand and say something like that can't work or that's not possible and therefore it's not even worth exploring as a, as a field to see if if it is working or if there's anything to it um but one of the major thinkers in the 20th century who did uh, attempt to craft or or did wrestle with one of the major astrologers of the 20th century actually is is what I ended up arguing uh in my show with Saffron was that young depending on your definition of astrologer if you if you define young as an astrologer which I I argued that you perhaps could then he would have been one of the most influential astrologers of the 20th century if not the most influential because he actually did attempt to and to some extent was successful in creating a new uh, somewhat new theory for how astrology works and that ended up becoming eventually the dominant uh, sort of theory or or leading to the basis for the dominant theory for how astrology works by the late 20th century and that was the the development of his concept of synchronicity. So, uh, why don't we start then at at the beginning of that, just by defining it? So, what is synchronicity, or how would you define it? Well, that in itself is a, a difficult um, task. Young uh, presents at least five different definitions of synchronicity. I, I won't go through them all, but maybe I'll give a working definition that uh, your listeners could use for now as we kind of develop the concept uh, in, in a more complex way. Um, so synchronicity is, uh, according to Jung, a meaningful coincidence, a meaningful coincidence, i.e. it's it's something more than uh, a regular coincidence. I, I remember um, there's one example that Marie-Louise von Franz, a prominent Jungian who, who worked with Jung um, and helped him with his writing, she gave an example that if, if you were in an airport and you blew your nose, and at the moment you blew your nose, uh, a plane crashed. Now, that would be uh, a coincidence, and it would be a bizarre one, but it wouldn't be uh, synchronicity because it's not meaningful or doesn't seem to be meaningful. So this, this, is, this is key to uh, understanding synchronicity. It's a coincidence of usually a, an external event, something that happens in one's environment, and uh, an inner meaning, subjective meaning, um, that ultimately, in Jung's view, often tends to arise from archetypes. So, and the uh, the, the oft-quoted uh, example of synchronicity is from Jung's own life, um, and I'm sure you know, many of your listeners will have heard it. But it is worth repeating just because it's become uh, a paradigmatic and a way to begin to think concretely about what synchronicity is. But it can all be very abstract, of course. Yeah, and, so, and especially yeah. for you know many of my listeners who are people just getting into the field of astrology and, and may not have heard about it. So 
with some of those things, we don't even have to take it for granted that they know about it as they very well may not. Of course, yeah. And I think even people that do know synchronicity and do know of it, it's it's very complex to, to think through. Um, so in the example that's become paradigmatic, um, Young was treating a, a, a female uh, a patient and he reports that she was trapped in a, a kind of Cartesian rationalistic worldview, i.e. she wasn't really open to the the idea that there was a greater meaning in life, some kind of spiritual meaning uh, in the world. And and the, the day before, the night before her next session with Young, uh, she had a dream of being given a piece of jewelry in, in the shape of a, a, a golden scarab beetle. So the next day she went to, to see Young and was uh, recounting the dream in Young's uh, office. And just as she was telling Young about the scarab, there was a tapping sound at the window behind Young. Young turned, opened the window, and, and, and grabbed in his hand uh, the nearest equivalent to a scarab beetle uh, in, in Switzerland. And, and he took the insect in his hand and turned to the, uh, the woman and said, here is your beetle. And she was so stunned by that improbable uh, coincidence that it punctured her certainty of her rational worldview. And Jung reports then that therapy could, could proceed. And she became more uh, epistemologically open to the possibility that there's meaning beyond what we, uh, we know of consciously, a uh, meaning beyond the uh, human sphere. Um, right. So, and, and there was some broader thing where they had been like working together for a long time, but weren't making progress or, or like she was, I thought he described her almost as like a difficult patient or something. And he didn't feel like, uh, their therapy was really helping necessarily until there was this weird sort of miraculous type of, of event where she's telling this story about, a, a having a dream about a beetle. And then it's, there's this rapping at the window and then he, he picks it up and, and hands it to her. And she has this really important like moment where something very weird has just happened. And then as a result of that, they then did start making progress in in their therapy sessions from that point forward. Yeah, that that that's right. I mean, Young connected the scarab beetle through Egyptian mythology to uh, the symbol of rebirth, and this is what seems to have happened. It seems to have been a rebirth in some sense from uh, the woman's uh, very entrenched and perhaps uh, impenetrable. Uh, rationalistic worldview to this, the possibility of there being deeper meaning in life. And on that hinged progress in her therapeutic relationship with Jung. So, yeah, so the rebirth archetype, as Jung would say, kind of stood behind the synchronicity, manifested its meaning through the synchronicity. And that's something we, uh, we can perhaps um, discuss too. Sure. So, and, and that's what you mean in terms of that there was a a meaningful coincidence of a subjective um, sort of mental state on her part where she was describing this dream and trying to uh, explain to him the significance it had to her. And then there was an objective external event that yeah. was a causally related in that her recounting the dream to him didn't cause the beetle to come to the window like like she called it to him or something like that, but that it just yeah. Uh, coincided in time that those that inner event and that outer event happened to coincide at that precise moment in time, and that they both recognized the meaning of that uh, parallel occurrence in time, 
And that's what yeah. gave it its characteristic sort of quality that uh, coinciding at the same moment in time and having the same meaning uh, between yeah. a subjective event and an objective happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a few different things there that you've uh, captured in, in that summary. I mean, one is the this idea that there's an inner meaning, something that is private to to you or I, or in this case, to, to Jung's uh, patient, how could how could the world know that she'd had a dream or the universe know or, or whatever it is? How, how could there be any objective uh, recognition that she'd had a dream of a beetle? It seems to the normal way of thinking that seems impossible because we naturally think our inner world and our sense of personal subjective meaning is personal and, and private to us. So it seems inexplicable that it's almost as if the world knew what she was thinking or, or, or brought forth a symbol through the, the manifestation of the beetle at the window in order to uh, emancipate her from this, uh, an entrapment in this uh, Cartesian worldview. Right. Um, you, have, you have actually a really brilliant um, statement to that effect in your discussion of synchronicity in uh, I think it's like chapter four, is it chapter four, or chapter five of the archetypal cosmos? It's on page 126, but you say, this is why instances of synchronicity are so perplexing for it is as if the cosmos knows what we are thinking and feeling, that the cosmos itself is aware of our personal situation and seeks through a symbolic line of communication to convey a message to us about our life. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, 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 I tried to convey that sense of well and there are a few things with synchronicity i mean there's there's the idea of that these things are just so improbable that it just seems like beyond the possibilities of chance i mean it could be chance that a beetle happened to crawl up the wall outside uh young's office and tap on the window at the very moment that the patient was describing a dream of a beetle i mean it could happen but it seems so unlikely i mean you know presumably uh, uh, that had never happened before in young's therapeutic life and work, work as an analyst um you know that's what one would assume so it's startlingly startlingly improbable and that adds to the to the, uh, the quality of that experience which is often uh, numinous a numinous is a term that young borrowed from rudolf otto and it really means something like spiritual power if you're you know if you have a sense of being in the presence of God or in the presence of great mystery and uh, you have a tingling sensation and the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end, that that's a numinous experience. And often synchronicities are of that quality. They, they are numinous. They, they c- come over as like revelations almost um, because it, partly because of the improbability, but partly because it seems to suggest that we live in a field of meaning that we're not normally aware that, as I said in that uh, quote that you read, it's as if the universe knows on some level what we're thinking or feeling and the, the, the symbolic synchronicity manifests in response to our need. Um, Jung, Jung would argue that synchronicities are often compensatory. By that, he means that we all... Uh, have what he calls one-sided viewpoints, i.e., you know, we tend to be uh, somewhat limited in what we understand about ourselves and our life at any particular moment. Um, so the unconscious, the unconscious psyche, in Jung's view, tries to compensate for that 
limited viewpoint by bringing forth dreams, um, primarily to, to round out the individual's view, um, but also synchronicities. So if there's sufficient energetic charge in the psyche, then it, it seems to be possible for a synchronicity to break through so that the compensation, the um, the introduction to a more holistic sense of what the true meaning of our life is uh, manifests not not then inwardly through a dream, but externally, uh, through an external event. So that's another aspect here, this inner, outer, the relationship between inner and outer, between mind and matter. Uh, and it's a, a legacy of uh, Cartesian philosophy, although uh, the inner outer distinction predates Descartes. But the, the Cartesian idea that there are two kind of substances. There's, there's, there's mind, the, and the, uh, which we have access to through our inner worlds. And then there's matter, uh, which is extended substance in Descartes' view and could be measured and so forth. Um, and these two worlds in, in the Cartesian view interact from through the brain. But synchronicity seems to suggest that mind is not only like within the human brain. It's not just an encapsulated realm within the head but it's actually in some sense um, inherent to perhaps the entire world, the entire universe, that there's some inner dimension uh, to what we would ordinarily imagine as being just matter, just the material world with no interiority, no, no mind. You know, we think of mind as something that's purely human, that it's in the human head uh, and, and therefore the world itself doesn't seem to possess um an interior dimension it doesn't convey meaning to us that human beings uh, we tend to assume are these that bring meaning to the world we are the, the the locus of meaning the source of meaning so it's very jolting to think that the world itself can convey meaning to us right and and uh i don't want to do this too much but i just want to do it one more time because it was so good i was just rereading the chapters last night from the archetypal cosmos and the way that you you stated this there was just so perfectly succinct i just want to read a couple of paragraph or paragraph again really quickly if you don't mind so this is from yeah, page uh, 127 and i'd recommend everybody get this book because you just do a really good job as you did in young on astrology in summarizing and presenting some of these concepts in a way that, that makes sense and is compelling. So you said, uh, through synchronicity, it is as if the universe itself were seeking to make the individual conscious of the deeper meaning of their life situation. And then you go on to say later that the existence of synchronicity radically challenges the modern Western philosophical assumption that meaning is present only within individual human minds, suggesting rather that meaning is in some sense present throughout nature that meaning is inherent in the cosmos as well as the psyche, a supposition that is central to the astrological paradigm. And then just one more later, that that meaning, you say, quote, that meaning exists outside man implies that this meaning is not just present in and perceived by the individual human mind, but is in a sense transcendent or transpersonal, overcoming the apparent division between subject and object, mind and matter. So, so Really, the the core theme there, it, which is really mind blowing. It sounds it's like sometimes it's almost easy to understate the point, but the point is the idea that meaning might not be something that is just subjective to human experience as individuals, which is how we're used to thinking about it, or 
maybe how, you know, in terms of the modern scientific worldview, how people are used to conceptualizing meaning as just um, something that's subjective and each individual has it on their own. But in this context, what you're saying is that meaning may actually be um, something that's more broad and more universal, that that meaning might exist in the cosmos independent of just our individual subjective experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you summarized it very well there. And as, as you were reading those quotes, I was thinking of, of a quote from Jung himself. Uh, he said, um, and I think I have this right, synchronicity postulates a meaning which is a priori to human consciousness and apparently exists outside of man. That's more or less that. Synchronicity postulates a meaning which is a priori to human consciousness and apparently exists outside of man. So the, the idea that a, a, the meaning is a priori means pre-given. The, 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 there is a pre-given meaning. We are, we are born into and live within a field of pre-given meaning that is inherent to the world itself. Uh, we're not aware of that normally, but um, when we have moments of synchronistic experience, um, which can be a, a wide range of things, you know, often people will be struggling with some problem in their lives and, you know, they'll go along to the bookstore perhaps and just randomly pull out a book and uh, open it, you know, on a certain page. And lo and behold, that page discusses the very problem they've been so preoccupied with. And you think, well, wow, how, how could that happen? Or, you know, you turn on the television and there's a talk show that's addressing the, the thing that you've been uh, so concerned with, you know, maybe for the last few days and that helps you resolve the matter. It's as if in synchronicity that there is like one, one psyche in a sense. And we are all in this psyche and we all participate in a shared field of meaning. Um, and if you think of it that way, rather than as separate individuals, each with their own private minds and uh, separate from the world and separate from animals. But if you think instead of one psyche uh, in which we live, uh, as Jung said, like fish in the sea. We're, we're like fish swimming in this one cosmic psyche. If you think of it in those terms, then it becomes less incomprehensible to, to, to understand how, for instance, the beetle could arrive at the window at the very moment that the patient is talking about a beetle. Because then it's just one, one psyche. And the, the, beetle's, the beetle's existence is not unrelated to the, the Jung's patient's existence. They are participating in one um, field, as it were, like one atmosphere. Jung said the collective unconscious, the collective dimension of, of the psyche is like an atmosphere. So it's like the sea, it's like an atmosphere, we're all in it. Well, we tend to assume that the mind, the psyche is in us, and it's encapsulated in us. So it, this, this view kind of reverses the, uh, the common sense way or or the dominant scientific way of understanding the nature of uh, the human mind and how that's related to, to, to the world and to, to other minds and to existence as a whole. I think that's why synchronicity is, is so important. Right. And, and one of the directions that Jung starts hitting with it is this idea that the cosmos itself, uh, instead of being this sort of like inert, dead uh, thing that we happen to find ourselves in, the, the, this notion that the cosmos itself is almost alive or has consciousness or has, uh, you know, what they call the anima mundi or the world soul—that mm -hmm. 
there's something uh, alive and like conscious of us that we're almost living inside. Uh, and that's a direction that you actually take things in your book as well in terms of starting to view the cosmos almost uh, as a, a living organism of some sort. And you argue in your book that that's a much better way to understand and sort of view what's happening. And that once you start viewing things from that perspective, you start understanding how something like astrology could make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Jung uh, hints in this direction. He he stops short, I would say, of, of fully articulating that kind of position. Um, but he, he often speaks, for instance, of, of reality as being what he calls a unus mundus, uh, which means a, like a single undivided unitary reality where we've come to think of reality in uh, terms of opposites, that, that uh, I'm here and you're there. Um, we have a, an inner world and that's separate from the outer world. Um, the the, the unis, term unus mundus um, features a lot in, in alchemy. Uh, Jung made detailed studies of alchemy, but he uses this term to refer to the fact that existence is this unitary whole and that even though we seem to be autonomous beings with our own private minds and our own will, really we're situated in this unity and we're not usually aware of it perhaps, but uh, something like synchronicity and something like astrology um, reveals to us that, that lost sense of unity and can help us connect to this a priori field of meaning in which we live and breathe. That, that's the idea. Right. I think Tarnas has like a like a diagram early on in Cosmos and Psyche where he shows like the, the usual way that we're used to thinking of it, if there's like a circle that uh, represents the self, and then there's a circle that's separate separate from that that represents like the external reality and that they're completely separate circles. Uh, but then in this other conceptualization, the two circles are put together almost like an overlapping Venn diagram of self and external environment and instead showing that there is overlap or an intertwining or, or less of a separation between uh, the, the psyche of the individual and the cosmos than we're usually used to to thinking about or, or assuming. And that's part of what synchronicity occasionally gives this sort of unexpected insight into, and that's what gives it its uncanny sort of numinous, almost like supernatural uh, kind of power is that it's not a typical experience, but instead it's these unexpected one-off experiences that suddenly make you realize that there's much more overlap than you would normally assume, and then what the implications of that are. Yeah, yeah, again, well well, well expressed. Um, the, the idea for Young is that, um, without getting into too much detail on this view, that, that uh, as we've as we've um, developed psychologically over the centuries, collectively, so the uh, the conscious ego, like the what we normally think of as ourself, the personal identity, the I principle, um, has become ever more powerful, more developed, more differentiated, um, and so we come to this sense of identity where we experience our, ourselves as, as separate, autonomous, self willing individuals, agents, um, autonomous agents. But behind this psychological experience, Jung argues that um, there's this earlier sense of living in a participation mystique is the term that he uses. 
Um, so at the level of the unconscious, there's this um, a kind of underlying unity that we are not normally aware of. Um, and so this term, participation mystique, means inhabiting a world in which the, the individual and the environment, nature, are not sharply differentiated. It's not me here with my uh, ego boundaries and, and the world over, over here, that, that rather they are, we, there's no clear differentiation between what is me psychologically and what is the environment. And this is, um, for Jung, a characteristic of a pre-modern, um, archaic uh, mode of being in the world. So you think of, you know, like a... Uh, and an, uh, an archaic tribe, for example, or someone living in the um, in the jungle or forest, having a sense of being one with nature, uh, not not that this is necessarily a good thing, but um, the idea that the, the woods are populated by spirits, or there's a spirit who lives in the mountain, um, where there's no capacity at that or little capacity at that stage to differentiate between what is psychological, i.e., what is my fear or my my wish or my desire and what is actually external. Uh, and then the, the, the whole evolution, the development of the modern West um, especially has furthered the separation, the differentiation of, of consciousness, the ego consciousness from that um, world of participation mystique. And so we've grown into a, a mode of psychological existence that emphasizes the autonomy and separation of the ego, but synchronicity seems to kind of put us back in touch with that undifferentiated unity of the of the um, state of participation mystique. And so it it can happen. We can get a synchronicity when we're, uh, as Jung would say, when there's a lowering of the threshold of consciousness, when consciousness is not. Um, clear when we're not when we when we fall into darkness about what our life meaning is when we become lost when uh, our need is great uh, you know the moment of grave peril when we really need something to to help us that's when a synchronicity can break through and it comes out of this underlying but lost sense of special mystique and it occurs when uh, as young imagines it when energy is withdrawn from consciousness and falls into the unconscious. It like charges up the unconscious, and that energetic charge. I think Jung is speaking somewhat metaphorically here, but the energetic charge in the psyche enables a synchronicity to break through. It, it, it's the power that enables uh, the world to respond, as it were, to the to the need of your of of one situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and one of the areas where Jung then took that as a as a psychologist was using synchronicity as a guide to what he called individuation and or, or finding the self. And, and that's one area because of my lack of background in Jungian psychology that I'm not fully clear on. Could you, could you explain what that process of individuation is and how, what role synchronicity played in that? Yeah, well, I, I will try. <laughs> sure. Um, again, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a, obviously a huge topic and a complicated one, but basically the idea is that, um, well, when we say self in normal speech, um, you know, myself, yourself, we, we're referring in, in Jungian terms to the ego. That's the, that's personal identity. But Jung introduced this other term, uh, self, uh, 
rather confusingly, I guess, but it's often written now by Jungian authors with a capital S, so you know the big self, the deeper self, that kind of idea. Uh, an individuation then is the process by which the ego, the separate ego, normal personal identity, personal self, comes into relationship with this greater self. Um, it, you know, if you, you can think of the self more concretely as something like the God within. Jung, Jung describes the self as the incarnate God image. Um, and he, he says elsewhere that it, the experience of the self is virtually indistinguishable from an experience of God. He, he won't say that it is God because he's kind of cautious making those kind of statements. But basically the idea is that the self is like the universal great human being within us. It's like God within. And so individuation is the process by which the ego, the normal human identity, brings itself into closer alignment with God's will or, you know, God, as Jung put it, God's secret intention for us. Uh, and so synchronicities can be read as hints, clues, signs um, that we can use to bring our ego consciousness into alignment with the way of things, like the Tao. You know, it's another way that Jung defines the self, the Tao, this uh, idea that there's a pre-existing meaning in the nature of things. And if you can align yourself with the Tao, you align yourself with that flow of meaning and flow of life energy. Um, so the self for Jung is the center of the whole psyche. It's not just the center of consciousness. It includes the unconscious, this vast realm of the psyche, which we're not usually aware. Uh, and it's in the unconscious that our deep, deeper life meaning resides. So individuation is uh, that process by which we are, are trying to come into a relationship with this deep life meaning to discover what it is that the self or, or God or, or life or the Tao would, would have us do. Uh, and synchronicities can be, as I said, clues that enable us to maybe change our life direction or to uh, recognize the meaning of our life situation so that we're not totally uh, trapped and preoccupied with our personal problems, but can kind of step out of that a little bit and see things more clearly um, with a, with an archetypal view, an archetypal eye perhaps. Uh, so that that's, that's how I see the the role of synchronicity. Um, it's kind of, you know, I guess you know, centuries ago, people might have said synchronicities were like um, omens, or they were portents, or um, they, they they were manifestations of one's fate. And you can it can feel like that sometimes when you have a synchronicity that your fate is being disclosed to you. This is what you must do with your life. It, like an epiphany of um, what your next step should be. And then there's also a sense uh, slightly different that there's this emergent meaning, something that's trying to come through it through you and manifest itself through you in your life. Uh, so the idea of the self as an emerging sense of wholeness um, and, and a connection to the, to the unity of life, um, as I said earlier, so all these things inform individuation. I mean, Jung is probably the central concept of Jung's psychology. So obviously more could be said on this, but I'm just, in terms of synchronicity, that's how I at least uh, tend to understand um, their place, uh, that they are these clues. You know, we use, we 
we mention signs often in popular in common parlance you know i need a sign what am i supposed to do in my life give me a sign there's something of that in synchronicity it, it, often the, the sign won't take us where we want to go you know <laughs> there's often a collision between the with what the ego would like to do our conscious wishes our conscious intentions and what the self would have us do and so a lot of the uh, the struggle of individuation is how do you bring your own personal will into alignment with uh, the dictates the uh, the impulses of the self sure okay that makes sense and and one of the big um you know things about synchronicity that's important here is that it's based on the um coinciding at, at usually the same moment in time of two things that share the same meaning or or are connected through having similar meanings or like an equivalence of meaning but otherwise are not causally connected and that they're not influencing each other at least directly through some sort of direct you know billiard ball type interaction like the the woman retelling the dream about the scarab beetle didn't cause you know the beetle to come to to the window because the beetle like you know heard it or something like that it just <laughs> they they just it, it just happened to show up at the same moment in time and to share the same meaning and yeah, so th- yeah. and so this is where astrology then become or this is where synchronicity becomes relevant to astrology because since at least the second century um astrology had been has been conceptualized or the dominant view in terms of trying to explain how astrology works uh since the time of, since the the work of the second century astrologer Claudius Ptolemy he tried to put astrology on a more secure scientific founding uh, footing in his time by reconceptualizing astrology as working through the planets influencing life on earth through some sort of causal causal mechanism through some sort of celestial influence and this became basically from the 2nd century forward into modern times part of the dominant theory about how astrology worked or how astrologers were able to do what they do with astrology is that somehow the planets were were thought to influence life on earth or or individuals or events or or what have you whatever astrologers are casting astrological charts for um but one of the things that young did when he uh developed this theory of synchronicity is um he was developing it and applying it to a few different areas and to a few different things like just trying to describe what was happening for example in that that incident with the client with the scarab beetle but um he also started taking the theory and applying it to other fields and one of the fields that he potentially applied it to was astrology as a potential explanatory um, principle or mechanism for astrology right yeah i mean i think you know he was motivated by the desire to have empirical evidence he was very aware of the zeitgeist at the time that you know, science was was dominant and he was a committed empiricist himself so he wanted some evidence to say look you know there, there's some proof here that uh synchronistic correlations do indeed occur and i can i can prove that statistically so that led him to do uh, an astrology experiment uh, which didn't work out very well and um, i'll say a little more on that in a moment but um but yeah that was his uh, motivation uh, to get involved with astrology um in part he, he also as you said earlier he was an astrologer in the sense that he used astrology so he 
he knew that it worked. He knew that it was a helpful therapeutic aid. Uh, he knew that it was connected to mythology um, and, and alchemy and so forth. Uh, so was aware of the, the rich lineage of astrology. Um, but he was trying to, um, as in many other parts of his psychology, was trying to present his theories empirically so that they would be uh, more readily uh, entertained or, you know, if not accepted, by the, the scientific community. Right. And, and he wasn't content to just use astrology as a as a tool, but he wanted to actually develop a, an understanding of of why it was capable of working, or or why it was capable of doing what it could do within the broader context of like an overall sort of philosophy or, or cosmology in some sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, he, he never really um, he never really did that explicitly, and I, I think that's why we Saffron and I felt um, the book Young on Astrology was necessary. It's because like. If you look at young studies of alchemy, there are three large volumes dedicated to alchemy and then alchemical writings in, in other volumes too. But on astrology, there was nef- there's not one dedicated volume of the collected works, uh, Jung's published writings on astrology. It was scattered. It was scattered far and wide. So it, it was a problem that had clearly preoccupied Jung, I think particularly in the 1950s. If you read Jung's letters in the 1950s, so many of them are to do with synchronicity and astrology and so forth. Um, but he never, he, he, he didn't, uh, in his formal writing, uh, set forth his views on astrology. And the closest he came was in uh, the, uh, the monograph he wrote on synchronicity in the 1950s. That contains the astrology experiment. But you're right, yeah. I mean, you know, he was clearly impressed by what astrology could bring to the table in terms of its insights. You know, it could illuminate, uh, as he said, certain certain problems in the therapeutic process that he had been able un- unable to see himself. Uh, so he was kind of this uh, therapeutic tool or, or a kind of map of the psyche, uh, as it's often called now, astrology. Um, and so Jung knew that it had this efficacy, but he, he like many of us, like most of us, I imagine, was somewhat perplexed by how it could actually work. So, yeah, one of the things that I that comes out in this book is Jung groping first in one direction, then in another, as he tries to um, understand for himself. I think as much as, as much as anything, understand for himself you know, how it is that um, planets, signs, uh, houses could um, indeed be be connected to human experience. Right, and I, and I think that was really the most. It's really the for me. It was the most brilliant part of this book of Young on astrology was uh, in part four of the book. You guys basically the last I don't know quarter of the book. You guys dedicate it to uh, exploring basically from excerpts from Young's writings. You identified at least seven different um, explanations of astrology that he entertained at different points in his life or in different writings throughout the course of his life. And some of these are not necessarily completely separate because there's some overlap and there's some instances where different explanations contradict each other. But at least you can see that what we have here and why it's important is because Jung was so well-read and he was such a a deep thinker that, that was able to draw on so much in terms of his background in studying the history of philosophy and and religion and psychology and, and all these other things that in addition to astrology, that when he attempted to 
formulate different theories. Um, he was drawing on a large part on both the ancient and the contemporary astrological traditions and attempting to do so. And so some of his formulations actually end up being almost like, you know, if you were to attempt to do sort of a, a meta-analysis of different theories for astrology down through time, uh, well, most of them would pretty much fall into one of these seven areas for the most part, I think. And so that's why I was interested in your analysis, and, and I hope we can go into that now about these seven discrete um, sort of explanations for astrology that you were able to kind of tease out of Jung's, Jung's writings. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd be happy to discuss those. Um, so, I mean, the, the first one, uh, you mentioned Jung's uh, breadth of knowledge. Um, the first, I mean, I, I call it an explanation of astrology, but he, again, he doesn't present it quite in these terms. So the first one is um, from a section called, mostly from a section called Forerunners to the Idea of Synchronicity. So in the Synchronicity monograph, he's introducing this uh, phenomenon that he, he knew would be um, radical in terms of how it was read and, and understood by his audience, um, because synchronicity, as we've already seen, contradicts so many of the assumptions on which the, the Western worldview uh, is based, i.e. the idea of uh, meaning outside of human consciousness, um, uh, inner-outer connection, uh, beyond Cartesian uh, interactionism. Um, uh, it, it contradicts the, the notion of causality. Uh, so it was radical in many ways. So Jung, I think, again, somewhat strategically, wanted to show that the idea of synchronicity didn't come out of nowhere. It's not something that Carl Jung had thought up one day uh, at home or that only he had had these very bizarre experiences. No, uh, he, you know, he was determined to establish that there were uh, many historical precedents to the theory. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what he did in that section uh, on on the first section uh, that we cover in, in Young on Astrology in part four. So in terms of its relevance to astrology, I mean, I think many of us who practice astrology are very familiar with the idea of as above, so below, the microcosm, macrocosm correspondence. These are ancient axioms, uh, ways of explaining astrology that poetically at least make sense to us. Um, but Jung was, uh, I think, trying to show how the, these grow out of uh, ancient theories of uh, correspondence is the key one, that all the, the, the sympathy of all things, the idea that somehow the, the macrocosm of the universe itself or the, the celestial heavens are within each of us individually, within the microcosm of the individual. And so this is one way that the, the correspondence between the planets in the heavens and what's happening in the individual life are, are explained, that somehow the, um, the celestial heavens are replicated within each of us. And we see a similar notion in Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Uh, so Jung believed that each of us at birth inherit the same psychic structure a deep psychic structure, and it's the same in everyone. The collective unconscious is in you, is in me, is in each of us. Um, and it's a, a collective dimension of our experience, and it contains the archetypes, these uh, formative principles, these universal themes and motifs and patterns and powers that animate human experience. 
So in that sense, the, the, the collective unconscious is like the, it's a bit like the macrocosm within the microcosm of the, the individual uh, in the ancient view. So, yeah, so Jung um, sets forth these, these ancient views, pre-modern views of, of understanding astrology. And I think he does that partly to show that uh, the, the current dominant worldview, the dominant scientific worldview and the way that we today, um, our academia and science today readily dismiss astrology is somewhat peculiar to the modern era. It's, it rests on the assumptions that have come to the fore in the time of science. Um, but if you go back just a few hundred years, there was a more um, open receptivity to phenomena such as synchronicity. The idea that for example, you know, God might reveal himself through, through miracles or uh, the idea of omens and, or the, the Chinese idea that to understand a, a discrete event or a thing, you have to consider not only that separate thing, but the whole, the, the whole picture, that everything ties together, everything is interconnected. And this is something that we've moved back to um, in, in some sense through modern physics. You know, this is one of the insights of modern physics is that there are no hard boundaries between one entity and another, and that even forces um, that exist between entities kind of merge in, in one undivided field of energy. And so you know, we've kind of come back towards a recognition of uh, the idea that reality is a, a, a unitary whole, an undivided whole. And you know, Jung was keen to explore these kinds of ideas, he had relationship with, with Einstein and especially with Wolfgang Pauli, a prominent physicist uh, in the first part of the 20th century. So, so in this ancient view, we see the beginnings of, of Jung's own formulation of synchronicity. He, he, didn't, he, he wasn't suggesting reverting to an ancient view. He wanted to present synchronicity as a modern theory, but he was also eager to point out the these ancient views of correspondence, the sympathy of all things, the microcosm, macrocosm correspondence were in some sense forerunners to the idea of synchronicity. They, they, as he said, synchronicity replaced, replaces the obsolete idea of the sympathy of all things. Right. So, so the first sort of theory or explanation of astrology that he entertained, or at least he explored from the ancient world, especially from the, Greco-Roman tradition, where it was actually pretty common in some esoteric traditions, like in Hermeticism, but it was also prominent as in Stoicism, was this idea of cosmic sympathy, which gets sort of oftentimes um, narrowed down to the the Hermetic axiom as above, so below, and just this idea that there's a a mirroring between what happens uh, with the individual and what happens out in the cosmos or or in the broader world in general, especially in terms of the planets. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, you know, most astrologers would um, go along with that view, the idea of as above, so below. But um, I think what interests me, and I think partly this was perhaps Jung's motivation too, that how do we, how do we explain that in modern terms? Because obviously, if you're trying to give some kind of theoretical justification for astrology or persuade a, a scientific audience of astrology's potential validity. It's not going to be enough to say, oh, oh well, um, there's a microcosm, macrocosm correspondence, and as above, so below. It, that's poetically evocative, but it, it doesn't, I think, 
carry enough weight uh, for for the modern mind today, which right. need detailed explanations, um, plausible theories. Right. And so, you know, I think Jung moves from from that um, pre modern understanding of astrology and then proceeds to try to introduce synchronicity as another kind of explanatory principle. That was one of the, one of the ways he tries to understand astrology at least. Right. And he takes sort of elements from that idea and, and incorporates it into synchronicity, um, as we'll talk about later, because that synchronicity basically becomes his seventh explanatory uh, principle that he, he eventually develops for astrology as he explores all of these other ones. Um, so, and of course, the the cosmic sympathy idea, um, at least in Stoicism, partially incorporated the idea of the cosmos being alive and the idea of the world soul being infused throughout the entire body of the cosmos, and that became like their physical reason for how something like cosmic sympathy could exist and how you could have a connection between different parts of the cosmos that otherwise appear to be unconnected because they're sort of connected through this uh, soul that's been diffused throughout everything. Um, and, and I know he sort of young mentions that a little bit within the context of this theory uh, as being relevant or, or being one of the necessary things that would have to be relevant in order for it to sort of work in some sense. Yeah. And I think again, well expressed. And I, I think that young moves back towards the idea of a world soul and animal mundi, through his later speculations on synchronicity in the 1950s, late 1950s, he, he kind of threw, through his own psychology, and we'll see this more uh, we proceed, through his own psychology, he, it's as if he came back to that ancient view of, of something like an anima mundi or a world soul in which all individual psyches are, exist. Again, it goes back to that idea uh, that I mentioned earlier of the, the individual psyche being like a fish swimming in the sea, where the sea is the, the animal mundi, the world psyche, if you like, or the cosmic psyche. Uh, so we see Jung introduce the, the forerunners to his theory of synchronicity. To He engages with the uh, this, this notion of the sympathy of all things. He was very influenced by the I Ching as well, um, and the, the Chinese idea of um, uh, correspondence between all discrete phenomena. Um, so he, yeah, but by, by the end, by the, as far as he gets in the 1950s, in terms of his speculations on synchronicity uh, and on astrology, um, that kind of leads him back almost to this, this ancient view of a cosmic psyche of some kind. Sure. And, and I think the Stoics used like this analogy when they were trying to explain cosmic sympathy of like a person, if I, if I can restate this correctly, I'm not sure if I will, but that like a person you have your your body your physical body which is kind of um like the physical universe and everything that we can see within it but then that each individual has a, has a mind or a soul and that sometimes you can like think about moving your finger and from an external standpoint it's like you see your finger move but that there's um something within you that's animating you in in terms of your soul which is then motivating or pushing for the finger to be moved physically or in the physical world and that somehow that was kind of like the analogy that they used or roughly something like that for the rationale for cosmic sympathy although it never i don't know in, in, in things i've read it never gets like fully articulated in a way that ever seemed fully um like anybody fully went into it and fully explained it in a way that was um 
clear. It's always this kind of mysterious concept that shows up most commonly in esoteric texts and is not ever something that's like fully fleshed out. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a, a, a fair assessment. I mean, one, one other idea that came to mind as you were saying that is this notion of a pre-established harmony that the, the, the God or as, a, as a prime mover initiated uh, the external world of events and the inner world of thoughts, feelings, and so forth at the same time, like setting two things in motion that exist in, in parallel. And so there's this pre-established harmony between the inner, the inner life and the, and the outer life. So that's a way of understanding the inner outer relationship um, that's not based on like a, a mechanistic causal um, uh, system. So normally, you know, we think, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a thought, a conscious intention, and then that's somehow trans- translated through brain impulses to our nerves and that causes a physical action and then we can act in the world. So there's this causal a causes B causes C model that prevails in the way we normally understand things. And that's obviously uh, the view that's pursued in science. But there are other ways of understanding the, the inner, outer, mind-matter relationship. And some of those are more compatible with, more consistent with uh, astrology. And um, so one of those ways is this idea of the pre-established harmony or a kind of parallelism where the it's not that uh, the mental world influences the physical world or vice versa, but the two just exist in a, uh, a constant correspondence. There's a constant correspondence between inner and outer. Right. So, and, know, and that's a good correction because actually my, the analogy I was attempting to use there wouldn't be a good one because in that conceptualization, the person is like causing their finger to move by sort of willing it to happen. And that's not necessarily the conceptualization when it comes to the cosmic sympathy idea. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's perhaps true. I mean, you know, the, the mind matter <laughs> question is a very complex one and philosophers have spent centuries trying to resolve this. Um, but I think that the, the key point perhaps then is that the ways that we tend to think about mind and matter today are not really helpful to us in trying to understand astrology uh, or, or synchronicity for, for that matter. And they would be a dualism where there's the, and an not only dualism, but more specifically an interactive substance dualism where there's um, the mind that's somehow associated with the brain, maybe uh, encapsulated in the head, um, that then um, interacts with matter through the brain. This comes out of Descartes, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And then the other view is a materialism, which is increasingly prominent, of course, the idea that really there's no such thing as mind or that mind is just an, an epiphenomenon of the brain. So the brain is firing neurons and we have this experience of being minds of being conscious beings, but that really is spurious and all that, all that exists is matter and matter can be understood in terms of the uh, mechanistic interaction of, of, of forces. Uh, and this, this view came out of classical physics, Newtonian science and remains prominent today even in the face of quantum physics and relativity theory, which you know, has uh, really dramatically changed things. But we retain this uh, Cartesian mechanistic slash materialistic view of, of the world, which when we think about astrology, you know, it's, it's a problem because we tend then to say, well, how can, how can Mars, the movement of Mars, influence my uh, experience of anger? 
uh, here on earth. You know, I feel angry. How on earth could that be uh, related to, to the movements or the positions of Mars or the relation of Mars to another planet? In terms of causal influence, that seems to us very problematic. You know, uh, gravity obviously is one way this can be, can be understood. But uh, I remember that Carl Sagan, a famous uh, cosmologist, said that uh, the gravitational force from the midwife and the doctor at birth is more powerful than, than any, any planet, considerably more powerful. And so the, for- the gravity is just too weak acting at distances to account for, in a causal sense, how a planet might influence us here on Earth. Similarly, um, the, the weak and the strong nuclear forces don't act over long distances. And electromagnetism is a fourth force, and that can be shielded by the f- flow of, of charges, uh, electromagnetic charges. So it can't act, uh, also can't act over long distances. So in terms of the four known forces in science, none of them can account for how a planet, a distant planet, might have any bearing on human life on Earth. Right. So it, it's problematic, and, and but the, the problem comes out of this causal way of construing the, the the relationship between planets and human experience. What Jung brings to us in synchronicity, uh, which we'll get on to in a moment, is an, an, an a-causal way of understanding how the planets might be related to, to human experience. And so it's it kind of pulls us away from the dominant paradigm into a different perspective on the, the problem of, of uh, astrological correspondence. Right. That's really important because that sets an important bit of context for what Jung was struggling with as he's, you know, part of, you know, the first or second generation of astrologers, of people to start practicing astrology and taking it seriously again in modern times in the 20th century, after it, after it had fallen out of disfavor, fallen into disfavor in intellectual circles in the, the 17th and 18th centuries. Partially because the 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 physical causal model for astrology that had dominated up to that time, which was Ptolemy's model, which he put in place in the second century, where basically he took some prevailing scientific theories of the time, which were the notion that the planets emitted or or influenced life on Earth, and through um, influencing varying levels of like heat and moisture, that they. Um, cause different events to happen either in the lives of individuals or in terms of natural events like um, you know the weather or earthquakes, other mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. And uh, during the course of the scientific revolution, one of the things that was developed was uh, alternative cosmological theories which displaced and, and in some instances disproved things that were necessary for Ptolemy's theories to work. And therefore, kind of removed those as reliable or reasonable explanations for astrology. And so, by the time Jung comes along, we're in a completely different cosmological and, and uh, scientific context where we don't really have any known physical mechanism that could account for astrology. And so, part of what he was struggling with was how do you come up with an explanation that makes sense for how astrology can work in a modern context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that issue, um, and then there's the issue of the Copernican revolution and the shift from a, a geocentric to a heliocentric understanding of the solar system. That was a, a kind of another uh, hammer blow, I guess, to the uh, the ancient um, medieval view of the of the universe. 
which, um, which is funny because as all astrologers today know, that's not like a, that's really not a big issue for astrology. Yeah. It just actually, it, it just was for unique reasons that we don't have to go into in Ptolemy's cosmology because Ptolemy's cosmology required the earth to be at the center of the solar system for what he was saying to make sense in terms of his explanation for how astrology worked. And it had to do with like the distances of the celestial spheres relative to the sun. And yeah. like Mars was seen as excessively hot and fiery because it was on the celestial sphere that was just above the sun. But when you remove the sun from the center of the cosmos, it or when you remove the earth from the center of the cosmos, it kind of yanks that whole cosmological out uh, model out from under its feet. And that's what caused problems. So we don't have to go fully into yeah, that. Yeah, but- yeah, I think there's just a, a prevailing mistaken assumption that um, b- because um, uh, the geocentric view of the solar system is no longer valid, that therefore astrology is no longer valid. For those people uh, outside of astrology, at least, it's one of those objections that would would come up along with the causation, the lack of a causal mechanism. And I think the other big one would be um, the idea of astrology being fatalistic, which is... Uh, it's it's contradicts the uh, modern assumption in in of free will. It's kind of a, this, again the Cartesian ego with the existential burden placed on it that that it can will its own life, make its own own life, and it's free to choose what it does in the world. That's a modern assumption that we all, to a greater or a lesser extent, live by, and therefore the idea that our our lives could be in some sense. Um, preordained or, or fated, which is not what most astrologers would assume. But again, it's, it's a, a perception of those outside of the field that, wait a minute, you know, astrology tells me that, you know, in two years, I'm going to get my, my dream job or move to a different house or something. Um, you know, that, that's been problematic, I think, to the modern, um, the capacity of astrology to be accepted to, by the modern mind. But yeah, that's a, it's a, a bigger conversation. Yeah, sure. I think we could we could be here all day if we get into <laughs> that uh, too much. But um, I mean, it is worth saying at least with the first point you made about astrologers casting charts for you know astrologers cast charts from a geocentric perspective because the that's where we are. The individuals live yeah. on Earth, yeah. and and that's a really in, uh, easy thing to dismiss for the same reason that you you know if you're trying to launch like a like a rocket ship off of earth then you want to do the calculations for where you're launching the the rocket ship from not from the sun even though you know that the sun is the center of the solar system yeah yeah that's uh, nicely put i'll remember sure. that one <laughs> yeah uh all right so within that context so young is on the one hand young is like he's basically like a classic scholar because he has classical training and he must have had some training in in greek and latin because he's reading a lot of these texts uh, in some instances, in their original language, it seems like, and he's citing sort of Greco-Roman authors. He's citing medieval and Renaissance authors, and so he's exposed to. And one of his the things he plays with that first theory was the idea of cosmic sympathy. But then the second uh, distinct theory that you sort of pulled out or set aside as one of the theories that Jung seemed to entertain at different points, or the second one is the idea that astrology is somehow a, a projection of the collective unconscious into the heavens, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me say a little bit about that, because I think this is perhaps the position that Jung states the most often. 
Um, and it's become influential or it became influential, I think, in, in some approaches to psychological astrology, especially. I remember reading it in Rajar. Dean Rajar saw astrology as a kind of projection. He put that in um, the Astrology of Personality in, I think, what, it, 1934 that came out? Right, because um, uh, Rajar was basically like the first major astrologer who started just incorporating tons of thought from Jung into his astrology. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, well, basically the idea here then is um, that the, the, the causation um, that appears to exist between planets and human experiences, behavior, uh, in Jung's view, is not, doesn't, is not caused by the planet. Rather, the, the cause is the psyche. So um, the collective unconscious, the archetypes and the collective unconscious are the, the, the agents that um, bring forth certain experiences. Uh, and what astrology is, is a, a, as you said, is a projection of and the inner world of, of the psyche onto the heavens. So it appears as if you know, Mars or Venus or Jupiter or Saturn are these causal factors that are affecting events and experiences on Earth. But really, and Jung says, this is not so. It, it, it's what's happened is that human beings um, uh, have projected onto the heavens, and what what they projected is the they've unconsciously projected the inner world of their psyche which in Jung's view is structured by these archetypes, these formative factors, the order and principles. We've projected the archetypal reality of the psyche into the heavens. And so it appears as if there are cosmological causes and reasons for human experience, when in fact, uh, and this is Jung's position in this particular case, when in fact the causes are psychological. Now, this is... uh, well, Jung's led to this conclusion in part because of the uh, phenomenon known as the procession of the equinoxes. Right, um, right. He comes and, to this conclusion from like a really in a really weird direction, but this is actually yeah. grew directly out of him trying to wrestle with the issue of procession and why the tropical zodiac would still work, even though the tropical signs are no longer in alignment with the sidereal signs. And this was yeah. his like fallback, or this is what he. This was his attempt to rationalize that was maybe we're just projecting the meanings onto the tropical signs. Yeah, I mean the the idea that well that the uh, the sign Aries um, two thousand BCE was directly aligned, precisely aligned with the constellation Aries. But since that time, that there's been this procession of the equinoxes, a backward movement, so that the spring point, the beginning of Aries. Is no longer aligned with the constellation Aries, but is now, you know, uh, some point in Pisces, or maybe maybe even in Aquarius. Um, so this means that if you look up, Jung makes this argument in the book. If you look up with a telescope um, at the constellation Aries, and you were expecting to see your sun there because that's where your sun sign is, you'd be surprised to discover that the sun is not in Aries, but is aligned with the constellation Pisces perhaps or, or Aquarius. So it's moved. So there's no there's no longer an alignment between the signs of the zodiac and the constellations after which the signs were originally named. So Jung therefore reasons, well, you know, it, it, it can't be then that there's a causal influence of the constellation of stars because the signs are no longer aligned with them. Um, but he seems to to use that that fact to then fall back on this 
idea that astrology is nothing but a projection. It, it, it can't have any astronomical basis because of the phenomenon of the procession, which has made things out of alignment. Therefore, because it has, because it can't have an astronomical basis, young reasons, it must be psychological and it must be projection. Right. Uh, so this- and that's a, it's, it's like a really weird line of thought in Young's work because it, it just assumes right from the start that there's no, there's no astral, there's no actual astronomical meaning or way that you could derive symbolic meaning from the tropical signs of the zodiac or, or it assumes that all of the, uh, meanings that were developed for the signs of the zodiac were originally all from the sidereal zodiac when in fact the two were roughly aligned around the time that most of the astrological meanings were developed for the zodiacal signs around the first century BCE. So it's, it's kind of a, a weird argument on his yeah. part where he's aware of this, but he doesn't know how to work out the is- issue. And so he sort of throws up his hands in frustration and says, well, maybe it's all just projection. Yeah, that, that may be true. I mean, I think as well, this, it, this, this kind of explanation relies upon uh, a Cartesian separation of the inner world of, of the human psyche, the human mind from um, uh, the outer world particularly from, from the heavens, because um, of course it could be that the mind is not just within you and within me, the psyche is not just in you and in me, but some, somehow inheres throughout existence. And so that if there's some psychological dimension to outer space, then you know, that, that challenges the view of astrology as, as projection. Because the idea, I think, in projection is that there's this encapsulated psyche with a, albeit with a, a collective unconscious that's within each of us. And, and we each, because we share the collective unconscious, we each project the same psychological structure onto the heavens. Like the heavens are a, a, um, a suitable medium for projection. You know, it's unknown, mysterious, dark, uh, with some kind of mathematical order, which is pretty much how Jung describes the collective unconscious. It's the dark, unknown realm of the psyche, it has this order within it, the order of archetypes. Um, so this this view depends on the idea that the inner, the inner realm of the psyche and the outer realm of the cosmos, the universe, are separate, and therefore one projects like, across this Cartesian divide from the mind onto the heavens, and that is the basis of astrology. But as we'll see later on, Jung, in many ways, goes far beyond the a Cartesian psychology, a Cartesian position. He contradicts it. The very notion of synchronicity of an inner outer correspondence based on meaning is, is blows open the, the Cartesian view. It, it blows it apart. And so Jung on the one hand is introducing this view of projection, that astrology is projection. On the other hand, he's, he's contradicting that in his own theories of, of synchronicity and uh, the, the nature of archetypes, which he, We'll get onto this in a moment, but he basically believes that archetypes are not just within in the, the human psyche, but they're also they, they they have they fall in with the processes of of nature. They fall in with matter, with physical processes. So l- this is later in his life. He's saying that archetypes. I used to think of them as inner formative principles, motifs in myth, themes of religion, and so forth. Um, the archetype were the factors that give rise to these mythic themes. However, later on, when he realized that archetypal themes like rebirth were manifesting not only in the human mind, but also in you know, the appearance of scarab beetles at the windows, 
And then he, he thought, well, wait a minute, archetypes must be, they must have some connection to the material world too. Otherwise, how could that be possible? So, you know, there's, there's a contradiction here um, in Jung's view of astrology as projection. Yet, it, as I said, it, it seemed to become quite influential in the way that astrology was understood from a psychological perspective uh, in, in the 20th century. Sure. I mean, occasionally, at least in terms of Rudyard, to some extent, although it seems like synchronicity became the dominant, it's like people, astrologers adopted, and you refer to this at one point in your book, sometimes uncritically, uh, Young's views on synchronicity. And that's actually one of the things that I found the most fascinating about your your essay in Young on Astrology, where you introduced this part of the book and you identified these seven different um, explanatory theories that Jung seems to have entertained at different points in his life because uh, so much of late 20th century and early 21st century astrology has become modern Western astrologers just adopting and adapting some versions of Jung's theory of synchronicity for their own purposes and, and oftentimes modifying it Whereas it's interesting when you break down these seven different theories, seeing Jung himself continue to struggle throughout his life and, and go back and forth between different theories and an alternate or sometimes not have a clear idea necessarily. That that was one of the most fascinating things that I found about that writer. Yeah. That's right, yeah. I mean, he never totally rejected a causal explanation, as as we'll see. Um so yeah, I mean Jung was was certainly uh contradictory in many ways but this is a difficult topic i mean i you know i'm I'm kind of sympathetic because he it was a real struggle as it would be for any of us to try to understand just how astrology works there's some element of mystery i think that can never quite be uh, fully penetrated but uh the aspiration to try to better understand how astrology might work i think is a good one and a noble one and um I, i think what what young perhaps he was perhaps too close to his own ideas to to see how they might how he might use his own ideas to present a more to my mind is a more cogent explanation of astrology in terms of synchronicity and i'll get onto that in a moment but yeah you're absolutely right that he was moving back and forth between one position and another sometimes astrology is synchronicity sometimes it's projection sometimes it's based on causal influence and so on and so there's never he, he doesn't really arrive at a settled position I think we can save that. Sure. And and so I think that's important. It's interesting looking at it from that perspective as some of these different theories, um, you know, because we're talking about this guy's entire adult life and his writings and his personal letters and as well as his published public writings uh over like a fifty or sixty year period. And so he he did change and sometimes he was influenced by different experiences he had or different sometimes struggles um, that he had within astrology. So one of them, as we were just talking about, was procession. And then some of the conclusions that he drew from procession or the way that he attempted to rationalize uh, the answer to that question for himself, where he continued to use the tropical zodiac. Uh, Another one, though, which leads to our third um, category of like an explanation that Jung entertained as a model for astrology was astrology as divination essentially and mm. this one's interesting cuz this one largely seems to arise primarily out of uh, a failed uh, attempt to do a scientific statistical experiment on the the concept of synastry in astrology right 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, that Jung had this uh, wish to try to put astrology uh, and synchronicity uh, on a firmer empirical um, ground. And so I did this experiment where he studied various combinations of the sun and the moon, uh, the moon and the ascendant, the sun and the ascendant, uh, in the charts of married couples, husband and wife, and compared that to unmarried couples. Um, and so conducted this experiment, and it seemed at first when they did the calculations that um, this did indeed prove that astrology was uh, is statistically um, valid. And so obviously there was a, you can imagine there was some excitement around that. But then later, Young went back to the calculations. Uh, I think he was working with a team of uh, uh, maybe uh, statisticians, or you know, they certainly had some assistance. But they went back and looked at the figures again and realized that there have been serious errors made in calculation. And in fact, um, they found that there was no statistical correlation between um, uh, the respective charts of married couples relative to unmarried couples. So, you know, most most people perhaps would be deflated by this, uh, uh, by the errors as well. But Jung took the error to be itself significant and said, wait a minute, something like synchronicity seems to be happening here because I, I, Carl Jung, became, I was so emotionally invested in the outcome of this experiment, um, perhaps even in spite of my attempts to be scientific and empirical. I was so invested in this that somehow the unconscious colluded uh, with the experiment to, to uh, make it seem as if there was in, there is indeed a statistical um, valid correlation uh, when in fact there wasn't. And so he talks of a secret mutual connivance between the psyche, the unconscious psyche of the experimenter and the actual experiment. And, and, you know, one can imagine, and Maggie Hyde explores this area in her book, Young and Astrology. Um, one can imagine that something like this takes place when we're doing chart readings. Uh, and I think the, those examples where you might do a reading with a wrong chart, you know, you put in 7 a.m. and it's 7 p.m. and then you do the reading or, or you get the date wrong or something. Um, somehow, if you, you can do a reading based on the wrong chart and you can still convey some insight, right? It's not, it's in spite of the, 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 the incorrect data, it, it can seem that astrology somehow works. And I think this is comparable to doing something like a tarot card reading where one uses something like synchronicity or synchronistic guidance to choose particular cards in the deck when you're doing a reading. And then that helps to illuminate the, the qualities of that moment or the, the situation that you're in. You know, you ask a question, you get an answer. Um, so this is one way that Jung used synchronicity uh, in his explanation of astrology that that whether or not there's any objective truth in astrology, somehow the unconscious believes there is, or you know, is invested in in their in um, uh, in, in young or an astrologer having a, a positive view of astrology, and then this creates the emotional emotionally charged situation that allows synchronicities to manifest, and so astrology becomes something like a, a means to divine. The, the moment, the, the quality of the moment, um, whether or not there's any kind of um, objective, platonic, Pythagorean, archetypal 
basis to astrology. So that that's that's the view of astrology as divination. Right. And and it's interesting because when he describes this experiment um in I think his essay on synchronicity, he he says that he went into it thinking astrology was a causal science and expecting to I think he got these synastry rules from from Ptolemy or something, this idea that in in married couples that you would expect to see that their sons conjunct or their moons conjoining or their ascendants or some combination thereof and then his initial results came back finding different variations of that but then in the end he once he realized it wasn't statistically significant he decided that his own subjective expectation and wanting to find that outcome actually uh, caused it or, or or influenced in some way the results that he initially received. And and so you you did an interesting breakdown then, or you referred to Maggie Hyde's book and how from that experiment um, where she distinguishes between two different versions almost of synchronicity that Jung seems to have articulated. And one of them is synchronicity one, which is there's this objective, meaningful but a causal pattern that's that's sort of occurring objectively out there in nature uh, mm-hmm. versus synchronicity two, where the subjective participation of the observer is actually influencing in some way external events, and therefore the yeah. astrologer cannot escape their own subjectivity, and that astrology itself in that model of, of astrology and divination involves to some extent some almost collusion between the astrologer the client and the the symbolism that's involved yeah, um absolutely yeah and of course it might be that both forms of synchronicity are valid that there is some kind of objective framework there uh some objective archetypal order uh, in in the nature of things and yet you know i think you know those of us that do astrology will know that there are synchronistic factors at work when we're doing chart readings i mean i you know why, why do you why does one choose to say one thing in one reading and another thing in another reading? I mean, it's it's not like a it's not like a scientific reading of a chart. It's it's an art. It's a, a magical art in some ways. And so I, you know, I think that's what emerges from this view of synchronicity uh, as applied to astrology as divination. That it's it's the creative act of of divining the moment. Um, but that doesn't, to my mind, mean that there can't also be an objective framework of archetypal meanings and we'll, we'll come onto that uh, in explanation six and seven sure yeah and i mean that's this has become i don't know if i want to well yeah i, mean, I guess i could uh, describe it as a somewhat dominant theme in modern times especially through the work of uh, jeffrey cornelius in his book the moment of astrology and also uh, maggie hyde's work and their explanation of their explication of this concept of astrology as divination, and Cornelius fam- famously argued in the moment of astrology that this is the reason why, at least in his experience, that sometimes even doing a, a chart reading where the data ends up being wrong, how somehow that could still produce a very compelling reading because of this mutual connivance or because of this this collusion almost where. Astrology is working partially due to the psychological investment of the astrologer and the client. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not personally fully on board with like that, that approach myself, just because I do think there is some objective validity to astrology, um, even to the extent that it's based on synchronicity. But it's interesting as 
you know, as you said, as a potential component to astrological phenomenon where there very well may be this sort of um, subjective uh, field of experience that's taking place, especially in terms of a, a client reading where there may be other factors involved besides just whatever the, the actual external synchronicity is. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, I think that that principle seems to me to be at work in, in doing readings, but so too does projection. I mean, I think, you know, we, we're always projecting. This is an insight of, of that psychology that we never really experience uh, reality as it really is, but we experience our what, what we bring to reality as much as what reality is in itself. And actually, part of the work of individuation is, is self-knowledge so that you learn to shed the uh, the veil of illusion and, and see more clearly, see that the facts of things rather than reality distorted by projections. So I, I think in, in astrology, the no doubt projection at work, people finding in their own particular astrological theory what it is they want to see, it will, it will be difficult for that not to be taking place. And likewise, I think that surely is this synchronistic element to the, the subjective act of working with astrological meanings through charts, uh, birth charts and, uh, and transits and so forth. I think both of them are in play. And as you said, the uh, divinatory view of astrology, well, it's become uh, popular, perhaps dominant, particularly in, in the UK, um, not so much in you know, where I learned astrology in, in, in California um, with archetypal astrology, archetypal cosmology. So, you know, there's a, a complex uh, array of different perspectives out there. And I think that that's one important one. Right. Well, I mean, and part of that is because since the 1980s, there was a, a revival of the practice of horary astrology in the UK. And a lot of the traditional revival there was centered around the practice of horary, which is much more similar in practice to something like, you know, casting tarot cards or what have yeah. you. And so it's much yeah. easier to make that connection versus something like mundane astrology where you're like watching world cycles play out over the course of centuries or even natal astrology where you're casting a chart for the birth of an individual and then watching later transits that were, you know, foretold decades ahead of time eventually play out in a person's life in a in a specific way. Um so there's different elements, but what's just interesting here about this one is the third explanation that Jung played with was just, again, this is something that arose out of almost like a, a crisis or a problem that he had when he conducted this scientific experiment, and then it went in a way that was perplexing to him. And so he tried to then rationalize and come up for an explanation for it after the fact. And this was one of his attempts to sort of explain what had happened in that experiment. Yeah, I mean, you could you could say that maybe he was trying to save face, but um, but then he didn't have to go ahead and publish it, so you know he couldn't have been too too embarrassed about the way it went. Although you know, I think he was uh, maybe a little embarrassed about the errors, um, but he saw it as a as a genuine phenomenon that that had emerged through this error, the error in calculation, and it, it's related to what I said earlier about the uh, lowering of the threshold of consciousness when. For synchronicities to happen, uh, there's a kind of return to that undifferentiated, unclear world of the uh, participation mystique where everything's connected beneath the surface. So when consciousness becomes clouded or, or, or emotionally possessed or blinded in some sense, 
that creates the conditions in which there can be this lowering of the threshold of consciousness and the unconscious world of the um, participation mystique can break through. And so I think maybe something like that took place here and maybe it does in some kinds of um, divinatory readings where there's uh, an emotional context to the reading that you're going to find out information about your life or a particular problem that you're, you're grappling with. The, there's a charge because it's an archetypal situation, like a, like a high priest, high priestess um, archetypal situation where you're going to learn something that's deeply important to you about, you about your character or your life, your fate, whatever it might be. And then that lends a charge to that situation, which makes possible in, in, in this uh, particular view of synchronicity, makes possible the manifestation of synchronicity. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, and I mean, there's one other point, which is in that before we move on, which is just there's uh, an issue with um, divination where chance is this huge factor where, where divination, especially in the ancient world, was always defined as like foretelling events that happen by chance or through a random allotment of something that comes together by chance. And so for the tarot cards, that's like the shuffling of a deck of tarot cards that should just be randomly result in whatever random cards come out. But then it turns out that that arrangement of cards at that moment for whatever question was asked actually has symbolic meaning. And there is the the divinatory sort of mechanism or, or synchronicity there underlying that approach to divination or um, you know other forms of divination like that. And then astrology in that context, for example, like with horary astrology is casting a chart for whatever random moment that somebody asks a question to the astrologer and the whatever the alignment of the planets happen to be at that moment, which are just you know, is is completely chance-like or is out of, outside of anyone's control, that that alignment of planets will then reflect the question as well as the, the outcome or the answer to what was asked at that time. Um, but then you have this question, because one of the, the assumptions then that Cornelius and others that make the astrology as divination argument make is that, um, that horary is not just this weird, unique thing, but instead that it's um, representative or like endemic of what all other forms of astrology actually are. But there's a question of do all other forms of astrology have that same chance-like characteristic to them? Or is the fact that the planets, you know, unlike the tarot cards, which don't exist in the specific state that they end up with at the type of, at the time of the reading until you shuffle them, does the fact that the planets are already like pre-existing out there as objectively uh, positioned and and sort of like fixed um, significators or fixed elements uh, in things like mundane astrology or natal astrology. Does that remove the chance characteristic uh, enough that it can't necessarily fully qualify it as divination in the same way? Yeah, I mean, they're great, great questions. Um, you know, I, I I'm inclined to the view myself that there is some objective order that is the basis to astrology and that's revealed cosmologically through the arrangement of the planets and it's revealed psychologically through an archetypal order in the unconscious that that's my own viewpoint um, i think on on chance um synchronicity perhaps changes our view of chance a little in that the the, the selection of tarot cards for example or, or the choice of the particular moment to ask a question in horary astrology 
um, or the the formulation of the question itself that might emerge from some kind of unconscious guidance uh, that there's some meaning coming through you know that the, the, the particular selection of a card seemingly random uh, can actually reveal the the workings of the unconscious even though it seems we're just kind of consciously or intentionally choosing card why choose one card over another you know, it's it's as if the act of, of doing that or you know throwing the stalks in the eating it allows the unconscious to express itself in that moment and that too may tap into the archetypal qualities of that moment even though it seems to be a wholly subjective or random or, or, or chance drawing of, of something uh, it, it's as if you know as, as Jung said when we got on to time you know whatever is done or born at a particular moment of time has the quality of that moment and so it might be that uh, to move into that area it might be that um what's what seems to be chance uh, what seems to be arbitrary and random is in fact uh, the medium through which some kind of deeper meaning can come through sure definitely um all right and uh Let's see. Oh, yeah. I want to mention, I mean, I want to qualify one statement I made, which is just natal astrology might still have a chance like character to the extent that the moment a person is born is outside of anyone's control. And so somebody could actually arguably characterize that as a chance like moment that somebody you cast a chart for, even though it's it seems predetermined in some sense in retrospect in terms of the actual moment that it occurs, it's kind of up in the air. I mean, you, unless you have like a cesarean section and it's deliberately chosen, in which case that would be controlled. But I mean, you have a, a child, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Was uh, he born? Nine year old boy. Was he born sort of randomly or was it, was it chosen? <laughs> well, who knows? Uh, it didn't seem random. Um, yeah. I mean, it was uh, not a straightforward uh, birth, but it wasn't um, cesarean. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this it's related obviously to the questions of, of fate and free will and could it, it it seems to us in life that we're making many free choices but ultimately do we really know where those seemingly free choices come from the decisions often just ultimately come over us from somewhere right and so it's, uh, it's extremely you're, difficult you're leading into into fatalism there i'm actually surprised for for you to to say that or well, articulate that in that way well, I mean, I often say that um, for me, astrology is not fatalistic. But as to the question as to whether there is fate, I I don't know. I I'm inclined to a, a view that Joseph Campbell put forward that the idea that there's a, a a transcendent fatality in life, and one often becomes aware of it only in retrospect. You look back, and it seems as if your life had to be that way. Although in the moment, you're burdened with the choice of. With, with free choice we have to make decisions and you know it may be that fate and free will as, as it often said are, are two sides of the same coin um that's my view but i don't look at a chart and think wow this 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 shows me exactly what a person is like or, or reveals their fate i i don't have that view of astrology but as a personal view i do incline to some kind of uh acceptance of what seems to be to me a transcendent fatality working through our our, our lives our, our choices sure sure i was just kind of messing with you because i know that that's a, <laughs> a topic of much focus to some extent in the archetypal astrology school in terms of a a rejection of uh, too much of an overt 
or, or, or restrictive concept of fate or, or fatalism being associated with astrology? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, maybe I lean a little bit more towards the transcendent uh, fatality notion than others. Because uh, it occurs to me that participation, which is uh, a prominent concept in archetypal cosmology, um, you know, the idea that we participate with the gods somehow and that we uh, therefore can, um, by by conscious awareness and, and intention, we can uh, inflect or change the way that archetypes were expressed. And so there's this participatory notion of the conscious ego in a kind of dialogue with the unconscious and um, being able to uh, manifest or, or direct certain archetypal energies in, in specific directions to an extent. However, you know, it, it occurs to me that even the very act of participation is itself already archetypally conditioned. So, you know, even, even if we think we have a, a, a brilliant creative idea, you know, which seems to be unique and novel and, and our own willing, our own choice, that comes through us, it comes over us. And at no point are we outside of the archetype so that we can uh, objectively interact with them in a, in a kind of undistorted way. You know, we're, as, as Jung, Jung was fond of saying, you know, we're, we're in the psyche. We can't get out of it. it. There's no Archimedean point outside of the psyche from which to view it objectively. So we're always being conditioned by archetypes. Like our, our chart, our astrological birth chart is always coming through us. I mean, it can come through us in different ways. but the very act of participation is itself coloured, conditioned, um, perhaps even you know, unconsciously driven by by archetypes. But that's my my view. Right. I mean, the um, even though fate is often conceptualized as like this external force that's being impressed upon people uh, from the outside or from the environment, the Stoics had this distinction between uh, an external fate and an internal fate, and they said that they both worked kind of in unison together. And they used this analogy of a, a cylinder that's at the top of a hill, and somebody gives it a push, which is the external event or fate of the cylinder. But then the cylinder, because it's cylindrical and therefore prone towards rolling, will then roll down the hill itself. And I always thought that was an interesting analogy for natal astrology, where you know, a person goes through life and at certain moments does have these external circumstances or events that occur to them that are like external impulses or their external fate, but then they also have their own internal predisposition based on the birth chart in terms of their character and their personality and their inclinations towards certain actions that then they'll be predisposed towards uh, like the sort of cylinder rolling down the hill given hmm. whatever the external impulse is. Uh, so there's a whole maybe dialogue yeah, we could have about that at some point, but maybe we can we can shelve that. Uh, yeah, I think we better. I mean, the only thing I would say to that is I wonder how distinct the external circumstance and the internal uh, predispositions are, because you know it, it often stuff is elicited through circumstance, and it, that, you know Jung, Jung said that um, sometimes in in circumstance you can see the other face of the unconscious, mm -hmm. i.e., the unconscious constellates particular circumstances in order to 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 work work its purposes through us for example or bring its meanings forth through us right um, yeah right and one one other thought on that we, you know we must move on you're right but there's the idea of a causation you, you can see 
human experience as a, a causal chain. So you know, an event in childhood causes something else, causes something else. A causes B, causes C, causes D. We can, we can understand in life in those terms, like a causal deterministic model. But it might be that working through those causal chains of events is a, a, a different kind of cause, you know, something like an archetypal cause or, or Aristotle called a formal cause, formal causation, final causation, where the causal chains are the means by which some pre-given organizing meaning or pattern are, are manifesting through our experiences. So, you know, I just thought I'd mention that because that thought was triggered by what you were saying about the example from, from stoicism. Uh, yeah. Be, so that, that makes me think of like the time twins issue as applied to the issue that you just raised. It may, is maybe a, an explanation or a way where I would go with that. Like I was just rereading some of your excerpts from Young on astrology and he, he cites that like often repeated legend, which I'm not sure is, is true or, or if that's even necessarily the point, but the idea of the, the guy that was supposedly born in England at the same time as a king and who had a remarkably similar life, but just relative to his station in life compared to the events that happened to somebody that was more eminent, but that there was a sort of archetypal or formal similarity between some of the events that they had at different types at different times in their life. And maybe that, you know, could go along with what you're saying in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's often a case of discerning the, uh, the, the, uh, common underlying themes even if the surface details seem to be different um you know it's like uh, at the level of universals two people with similar birth charts are going to be experiencing similar manifestations of that but at the level of specific concrete details what they do with their lives who they marry where they live and so forth that's going to look wholly different and i think you know that's a, an insight that that runs through and informs astrology Right. And Turnus has some specific statement about this in Cosmos and Psyche, but I forget how he formulates it. He says that astrology is not uh, strictly deterministic, but it's archetypally deterministic yeah. or something. Ar to that. Archetypally predictive and not concretely predictive. That's it. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So that then leads us to uh, number four, which is explanation number four that Jung explored as a, as a principle or, or rationale for astrology. And this um, was really interesting where even later in his life, he was still one of the things you point out in the book is that he was still open to possible causal mechanisms and he was still entertaining like recent scientific theories, uh, like one about solar radiation as being a potential explanation for astrology. And this, this really surprised me because, uh, like I said, by the late 20th century, most modern Western, especially psychological astrologers had adopted his theory of synchronicity as a as a way of providing an explanatory rationale for astrology that was just completely without any sort of causal mechanism whatsoever and so it was curious to see that Jung himself was still wavering or was still vacillating or was still open to the idea that there could be some causal component and said that perhaps that it could be both that that synchronistic and causal explanations might be simultaneously valid that's right. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he said somewhere that the unconscious doesn't give a jot for either or explanations. Uh, you know, you've got to choose, it's got to be causal or it's got to be synchronistic or divinatory, that it could be both because in the unconscious, yes and no can be true simultaneously. He made that argument. Um, I, you right. know, I don't really know what, what to make of this shift. Um, he seems to have been influenced by what he'd read. 
And in in some ways, it's simpler. And if we could say, well, yeah, you know, astrology could be explained in terms of some kind of emitted force, uh, that's a lot simpler, you know. But if you want to understand astrology in an a-causal way, then I I think one has to look at quantum physics and um, things like systems theory and, you know, complex uh, views of reality that in, in some sense go against our, our, our common sense view of the world and so that makes it more difficult. But I don't know. I think, you know, Jung, there's a big part of Jung that was a scientific empiricist. He, he was a, a Kantian. He followed the uh, Kantian belief that um, we can only know the limits of the psyche. So he, he, he wasn't metaphysical. We tried not to be metaphysical, um, but yeah, he had this empiricist streak. And I think, you know, it was probably quite alluring for Jung to think that, uh, as he said, you know, one day astrology could be recognized as a natural science. Um, so he moved from this view of astrology as a mantic method, divination, um, and he moved back and forth from there to the idea that it was causal and then to it was both. You know? right. And so, I, yeah, he seemed to be in a period of confusion uh, around that time. But I do think that Jung's most cogent explanation of astrology lies elsewhere in, in, in neither of those possibilities. Sure. It was just interesting because a lot of this comes from like his letters in the 1950s towards the end of his life. And he, yeah. he actually says, I think in one of them that you quoted at one point that he, he needed to go back and revise what he had written in the synchronicity essay. And I think he was referring to, um, the results of the experiment and the direction he went of astrology as purely divination. He was thinking by the 1950s that he might have to revise that as he was entertaining or at least playing with there being at least some causal mechanism perhaps yeah yeah that's right okay that's right so that was number uh number four uh the fifth explanation was this this sort of general idea that that time has qualitative properties and this was what was underlying his famous and often quoted statement that quote unquote whatever is born or done at this particular moment of time has the quality of this moment in time right yes that's right yeah and you know, I think that's something that astrologers um, would concur with. I mean, that seems to be what astrology does—that it, it looks for qualities of particular moments. What's the quality of the, the moment that someone is born, and how does that how is that revealed through the symbolism of the birth chart? Um, so, yeah. So, I think that's been influential on astrology. Although you may have noticed that uh, again, a young kind of is not consistent, and by the end of that chapter. Uh, has retracted this idea and has said that uh, actually time is is empty. It's uh, time is defined by the events that take place in time, and is itself actually nothing. Um, so he said the idea that time has qualities is a, a tautology. I, it's um, a circular truth, um, and so he's trying to re- rephrase or, or reformulate this view. Of astrology as a reflection of the qualities of the moment of time in terms of a broader theory of synchronicity. So, you know, it's he spends a lot of try, a lot of time trying to and a lot of effort trying to articulate this theory. I think in um, I think it was the, the vision seminars or the dream seminars. I forget which that um, he, several pages of detailed analysis of how time is related to energy. And fate is related to time, and he really goes to considerable lengths to to explain this view. So it's obviously something that he 
he, he entertained very seriously, um, but then uh, came to this later uh, insight that uh, the time is empty. Uh, and maybe this goes back to Jung's Kantianism. Uh, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, had this idea that space and time are not out there in the nature of things. Rather, they are just categories of the mind. They are a priori categories so that we construct our reality as if um, things are, like, occupy their own regions of space and time and as if things move uh, in temporal sequence from A to B. But that's the mind constructing uh, an unknown reality into intelligible uh, categories of, of experience. So given that view, if Jung believes that time is just a category of the mind following Kant, then perhaps he was unwilling to then say, well, time is this kind of medium that contains qualities that then shapes events and experiences that take place in time. You can see how those two things are quite contradictory. So this, this doesn't come out in the book. This is just my what I'm surmising as to why Jung felt that he needed to retract that idea that um, things that are born in particular moments of time have the quality of that moment. Um, so right. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I th- again, it's a, it's a complicated one. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important, though, because it's definitely he's – trying to articulate something that seems like it had been a, a foundational principle in astrology, a foundational conceptual principle in astrology on some level for at least 2,000 years at that point, Since ever since in the first century BCE, the concept of natal astrology was developed and the idea that the alignment of the planets at the moment you were born would indicate something about the the quality and future of your life. And then that idea was also extended to electional astrology and the notion that casting a chart for the moment that something begins will indicate both the quality of that event as well as its future and he you know it seems like he's riffing on concepts like that in order to come up with some of these statements that time doesn't just have duration but it also has quality or meaning and therefore astrology itself functions like a like a cosmic clock or a watch and then leads from that to these notions and these arguments of of fate being identical to time. Um, and it seems like some of those statements ended up being tremendously influential on later 20th century astrology because astrologers yeah. did pick up on some of that in order to try to articulate that basic premise of like natal astrology or electional astrology or, or horary astrology or what have you. Yeah, I think you know maybe Jung was too hasty in um, rejecting that idea. Um, we will see when we look at the seventh explanation that he has this view that, uh, that the collective unconscious, but certainly at its deeper levels, is spaceless and timeless, i.e. space and time don't exist in the unconscious, in the collective unconscious. However, he, he then suggests that it's as if time is, or the, the, the timeless, spaceless realm of the unconscious manifests in a series of discrete moments in time. This is how he's kind of thinking through um, the issue of synchronicity. We'll, we'll look at this more closely in a moment, I'm sure. But but the, the basic idea here then is that it could be that time does have these particular qualities because time in this in Jung's other view is a, a, um, a manifestation of the timeless world of the unconscious into uh, empirical phenomenological moments of reality, uh, temporal moments, A, B, C, when in, 
in the collective unconscious, A, B, C exists simultaneously, or there is no time. So this kind of this idea of an, an unfolding of moments of time out of the unconscious, with each moment having a, a certain uh, archetypal quality, and I think that's what astrology gets at. It gets at that that quality. Right. Um, so I, I think you know I can see why Jung rejected this view of explanation in terms of time, but I I'm not entirely convinced that that it was the right move. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think we have to. He, he came up with different interesting ideas throughout the course of his life through partially his own personal reflections, but also through exploring different traditions. And so one of the great things about him then is his ability to articulate things that he's observing through some of those almost like classical or historical studies. And I think that's one of the things that's useful here is that he literally encapsulated something that that was on some level being taken for granted by the astrological tradition whether or not he, at another point in his life, felt that it was fully compelling as a, as a complete explanatory rationale for everything, or whether it was too strict is almost sort of like another matter. Um, yeah. But but that does tie into the sixth explanation that you identified, which is um, numerology, basically, was one of the other explanations that he played with. And the idea that number has symbolic meaning, that it's not just just quantitative, but it also um, has sort of meaning in some broader symbolic or interpretive sense. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I can explain how Jung got to this, perhaps. Uh, so he, first of all, discovered that, as he put it, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that the, the unconscious uses number as an ordering principle. So number is the archetype of order, as he said. So what he what he found was that for example, um, if someone was in a, a confused, turbulent psychological state, they were going through some major life transformation, uh, that they would be inclined to uh, produce mandala symbolism, which is a, like a, a circle with a, a fourfold a quaternity structure. Um, and Young himself painted some of these when he was going through his own um, transformation between 1912 and 1918. So he recognized that the unconscious seems to be structured by number, oneness, uh, duality, tensions of opposites, uh, the quaternity motif in, in, in the crucifix, cross, uh, and in mandala symbolism. So that's, that led him to this conclusion that number is the archetype of order. And then later on, uh, again in the 1950s, and this comes through most clearly in Jung's letters, he moves beyond a view of archetypes as just being psychological so certainly before the second world war there's this idea that the archetype is an uh, a, a formative factor in the unconscious psyche it, it's it's psychological but then later he introduces this idea that the archetypes are are psychoid um, which is a term that he he wants to use to suggest that the archetypes are not only psychological i.e. they not only manifest in our dreams or fantasies, you know, you might dream of a, a, a wise old man. A wise old man is an archetype, an archetypal motif. So that's a psychological manifestation of an archetype. Or you might dream of being reborn, for example, to go back to our, our earlier uh, uh, mention of uh, the rebirth archetype. So you, can ha you could have a dream or a fantasy that has an archetypal motif or theme in it, and that's the psychological side of the archetype. But Jung realized that in synchronicities, and I mentioned this a moment ago, in synchronicities, 
the archetypal theme also seems to be evident externally in the external world. You know, if you encounter an unusual animal and that is, is the, the symbolic meaning of the animal is related to what you're going through psychologically, as in the scarab beetle example, for instance. So archetypes Jung recognized are not just, they're not limited only to the psyche, but they come, come to us from the world as well. They seem to inhere somehow in matter. Uh, and so this term psychoid is suggests that it suggests that at the deeper level of the archetype, it's neither psychological nor material, but something that is neither of those, but also perhaps both uh, a neutral third thing. Um, so this is a shift in Jung's view of archetypes. Now, if he believes that numbers are archetypes and numbers are manifest in the in the psyche, as I explained, and if he believes that that uh, archetypes are psychoid, so they're not just in the psyche, but manifest in the external world, then it stands to reason that numbers are perhaps responsible not only for the order of the psyche, but for the order of the whole universe, which is something close to a Pythagorean view of, of number as being like a transcendent form, an eternal form that manifests in the structure the order of, uh, of our experience of reality. So I very quickly there traced something like an argument that shows how Jung moves towards something close to a Pythagorean view of, of the world. And in, in his letters in the 1950s, again, he's, he's basically acknowledging this, that he, he felt that Pythag- Pythagoras was on the right lines and, and so forth, similar kind of statements. So what we have, perhaps, in terms of astrology is this idea that the planetary order, the, the configuration of relationships between the planets as they move in their orbits, and the archetypal order in the psyche, both arise from something deeper, a deeper numerical transcendental order that is, is something like a, a Pythagorean platonic objective order in the nature of things, and that the the physical universe, the, the cosmos, and the psychological, the psyche, both derive from the same underlying numerical order. Now, Jung doesn't make that argument quite as explicitly as I've made it there. I, I just join the dots on various statements that he's made, and I, I kind of present an argument that this is how astrology could be understood in terms of Jung's own thinking in a way that is consistent with Jung's own thinking, but he doesn't really make this explicit right and it makes sense that he would go that direction to viewing the archetypes as potentially as number as as numbers or being equivalent to number because i think that's the direction that that plato went as well in his conceptualization of the the forms or the a day or the his conceptualization yeah. of the equivalent of young's archetypes on some level even though conceptualized very differently of because you know archetypes are viewed as these this transcendent Qualities that are that are informing nature in some way, and all of the various manifestations of certain things. But you had an interesting breakdown that maybe you could re- repeat here, and I don't know if you already stated it, but of just an early example of just like the numbers one, two, three, and four, and how those could be seen as having inherent meaning, just following that almost like Pythagorean sort of conceptualization, where where one represents unity and, and two yeah. represents duality and what have you yeah yeah i mean and for young this uh, as i mentioned for young this is a psychological um 
manifestation of a numerical order. So one being unity, as you said, or, or beginning, you know, the, the first number, two being duality, the tension of opposites. Jungian psychology really is centered on this idea that uh, our, our experience of reality is structured by opposites, high and low, male and female, light and dark, good and evil, uh, and so forth. And, and individuation is learning to, to live with the tension between opposites and try to reconcile them. And they're reconciled through a third principle. Uh, Jung uh, refers to what he, what he calls the transcendent function, which is the capacity of the psyche to bring forth a symbol or a third position that unifies the opposites. And so that's the nature of the three, the, the unification of the tension of opposites in some kind of emerging third principle. And then the uh, four is to do with quaternities and um, uh, the, the notion of a, a, a consciously realized wholeness. So the mandala, in the mandala sim- drawing, you get a circle. A circle symbolizes wholeness, um, but usually an unconscious wholeness. And then the, the uh, imposition or the, the imposing the, the fourfold structure on the circle suggests the realization of that unconscious wholeness in actuality, in consciousness. Um, so this is how Jung understands uh, number. So, and, and as you said, it's the idea that number is not just an instrument for counting, as we tend to assume, you know, one plus two plus three, but it, that numbers actually are entities, transcendent metaphysical entities in their own right. This is a Platonic uh, Pythagorean view. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, again, something that is, is very much at odds with the way we normally construe reality today uh, in terms of uh, a scientific view of the world, but it's, it's an, an idea that Jung approached through synchronicity. Right, and you can immediately see why Jung would have gone that direction with astrology because of some of the cl- clear uh, numerological sort of things that are built into some some parts of Western astrology, like, for example, the the masculine and the, the distinction between male and female or masculine and feminine signs does probably derive from that Pythagorean view of of odd numbers being masculine and even numbers being feminine. And so that's why Aries, the first sign after the vernal equinox, is conceptualized as masculine and Taurus is conceptualized as feminine yeah. because it's the second. Or in other areas, Jung would have seen things like you know, associating the conjunction, for example, with uh, the number one versus the opposition being associated with duality in the number two, and then yes. that, that sort of shows up in in sort of the difference between like the first house being associated with the self versus the seventh house being associated with the other on the on the other side of the opposition, uh, and and other ways that astrologers have tried to to either. Where numerology has explicitly probably been built into astrology to whatever extent it was a deliberate construct, or perhaps to whatever extent it just sort of naturally arose that way if these numbers do have these actual sort of transcendent qualities. Yeah, I mean, I think arguably um, number archetypes are the basis of astrology in its entirety. I mean, if you think of the signs and houses, they're the twelve, the division into twelve, is based on the that's the lowest common denominator of one, two, three, four, um, and yes, and aspects. As you said, you mentioned the conjunction, the opposition, uh, the square is obviously based on the number four, the trine on the number three. 
So the, the nature of the, the qualitative nature of the relationship between the planets uh, in aspects reflects, seemingly reflects this um, Pythagorean archetypal view of number. Right. So and, yeah. And the notion yeah, that I mean, some I, aspects I, are harmonious and others are yeah. disha- disharmonious. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And no doubt Jung was influenced by, by a, a, his reading of astrology too in this. I mean, Liz Green's just produced two books um, published by Routledge that look at uh, what what one of the books looks at um, which astrologers Jung, Jung was reading and what he what he learned from and so that that would be a, an interesting area to explore too because obviously I think there's going to be a two way relationship here. There's we've, we've con- been concerned mostly with the way Jungian ideas have influenced astrology, but on the other hand, astrology uh, no doubt influenced Jungian psychology too. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about those books. I think they were supposed to come out last month and I just got a notification they're finally being shipped. Although a few of my friends, I think in the UK already got theirs. Did you get, have you gotten yours yet? I haven't yet. Yeah. I think um, I, I had a, a communication with Liz uh, last year and I think she said February or I think, yeah, I think February was the date she gave me. So um, glad glad to hear that that's uh, in the pipeline. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping at one point once I get the books to maybe interview her because I'm curious about that. Since in your book, I was able to see some of the sources that Jung drew on, and I know he was drawing on some contemporary scholarship on ancient astrology. Like he cites uh, Bouche Leclerc's L'Astrologie Grecque at one point, which is like still today is seen as the main academic treatment on the history of Greco Roman astrology that was published in like 1899. Um, wow. But I would be curious to see, and, and he would have picked up some of the Pythagorean stuff with the aspect doctrine there, but I'm curious to see what else he had access to, um, which hopefully Liz Green will talk about in her book. Yeah, I will tune in for that one, certainly. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, we're finally there after two hours and 20 some odd minutes, I think, to <laughs> the, the seventh conceptualization of astrology that Young eventually entertained and and I think you argue in your book that this came to be his final and, and primary sort of conceptualization is that, is that what, correct which is astrology yeah, as synchronicity yeah again it's not um it's not the young makes this explicit as an explanation of astrology it's an explanation of synchronicity which by inference one can apply to astrology so I just want to make that clear and you know this is um well I don't think it's a creative marshalling of young but I try to use what's there in Jung to present a, a more, to my mind, more satisfactory, more cogent explanation in terms of Jung's own concepts. Because um, that actually part of my motivation for wanting to do this book was to, to do that, that very thing, to allow Jung to, or to allow a reader to see how Jungian ideas could support the, the kind of explanation of astrology that he articulates in the seventh section. Um, so it, it's kind of a, pulling it all together explanation. Um, and it's, it's not uh, a simple one to follow. Um, so, you know, I encourage uh, listeners to, to go away and, and study what Jung said directly, but basically it's the, uh, this idea that synchronicity number one in Maggie Hyde's scheme, the idea that there's that synchronicity is not just specific instances where meaning breaks through or is divined, but is a, 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 an explanatory principle that is on a on a on a par almost with causality. It's another kind of explanatory principle like causality. So Jung introduces this idea of what he calls an a-causal general orderedness, saying that synchronicity is an, an, an 
an expression of this underlying principle of order, a general, a causal orderness that seems to, to run, run through reality. So this goes hand in hand then, this idea of this underlying order with the idea that reality is it's a unus mundus, it's a single undivided whole. Uh, and it's connected too to another idea that Jung puts forward. That is that there's what he calls a transcendental psychophysical background to reality, a transcendental psychophysical background. So what I do is pull these various little um, streams together uh, and to, to try to show how there's a, an explanation of astrology here. So there's this idea that there's an underlying background to reality, a psychophysical background, and that this reality, this background order or ground, has its own underlying order. There's an order intrinsic to reality, and then this this underlying order manifests as the physical world, the universe, uh, and the psyche. And it kind of each moment bringing forth uh, the order um, into a sequence of, of temporal moments. Into, it creates the phenomen- phenomenal world moment by moment. So it's the idea, really, of the unconscious of this creative matrix or ground that has an, an intrinsic order, and then the order manifests, uh, as I said, as the universe and the psyche, moment to moment. Now, if that's the case, then it could be that the order of planetary configurations that we study in astrology and the order of archetypes in the psyche are, in fact, expressions of one and the same underlying transcendental order so that i think is uh, where Jung's late speculations lead him towards uh, but he, again he comes to this through synchronicity he doesn't really apply it to astrology he just kind of hints uh, in that direction but this explanation draws on the idea of astrology as synchronicity uh, it's related to the first category of explanation the, the ancient view of the cosmic psyche uh, the sympathy, sympathy of all things, a correspondence, microcosm, macrocosm, relationship, and so forth. Um, it draws on this idea that that, that uh, moments in time have certain archetypal qualities or patterned by certain archetypal qualities. It also draws on the idea of uh, numerical archetypes as being uh, intrinsic somehow to this underlying order. Uh, and so, you know, I think you can see there how there are elements in these various explanations that Jung proffers over the course of his life that come together in the seventh category. Sure. But, um, you know, it, it, it certainly requires a, a, a close reading. I think I, I make the comment in my introduction to that part that it kind of strains the, our powers of comprehension to really get what Jung means here. This is what he seems to be groping towards. Sure. It's not something that he ever really fully completely articulated and that he didn't like write a book about astrology and synchronicity, but he in through his various writings sort of hinted at this notion of astrology working through a sort of consistent a causal parallelism or correspondence. And that idea of it being a causal is important because that is then contrasted with a causal view of astrology where the planets are directly or indirectly influencing life on Earth in this in this conceptualization the planets do not influence or cause events to happen but they're instead just mirroring them or or acting in parallel or in unison with them um, yeah i think it's the idea that the planetary configurations are, are kind of um 
a symbolic physical manifestation of the depths of the psyche. And so they, they, they're connected to the archetypes, the same order um, that is present in the depths of the collective unconscious. I think we can, we can see a, a physical manifestation of that in the order that's presented to us um, in, in the heavens. And this is the, an idea I pursue in uh, the archetypal cosmos um, with the help of Jung and with the help of certain perspectives in the new paradigm sciences. But, it's a a conversation for for another day. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to follow up on that. But I mean, one of the important points here, and this is that, especially in the direction that astrologers later took it, is the idea that this is consistent. So it's it's unique or as applied to astrology becomes a unique form of synchronicity or application of synchronicity because it's not most of the time a a one-off or or spontaneous or or unexpected event necessarily, but instead it's something that's happening more consistently out there in terms of the planets mirroring what's happening in individual lives or or on Earth rather than something that's uh, uh, spontaneous or or not happening regularly, right? Yeah, and it's the idea that there's an objective order that is somewhat independent of human consciousness. If I can put it in those terms, whereas if you think back to the other side of synchronicity, that that is that comes out of the subjective participation in particular moments uh, that, that are revealed through a sudden uh, emergence of a synchronistic episode or or in divination and so forth. This idea, as you just said, there is that synchronicity or a general a causal orderedness is a explanatory principle that tries to account for the existence of some kind of consistent and coherent correspondence between the inner world and the outer world. And astrology seems to rest on that uh, kind of more or less permanent synchronicity that the the planets are always in relationship to the archetypes in the unconscious Uh, that, you know, you know, if, um, if Saturn and Pluto, the planets are in alignment, then the Saturn archetype to do with the, the old, the Senex and, um, shadow inferiority and and the pluto archetype to do with the underworld and death rebirth and uh, power drives and so forth come into into relationship because they are reflections of one and the same order i.e the order that gives rise to the positions of the planet saturn and the planet pluto is the same order that gives rise to the coming together of the saturn archetype and the pluto archetype that that's the kind of idea that there's this more or less permanent, constant correspondence between inner and outer, and that the planets and the archetypes are part of that correspondence. Right. And and so this sort of in modern times is important because then it sidesteps the issue of there not being like a known physical force or mechanism whereby the planets or stars or other celestial bodies uh, could literally affect or directly or indirectly affect things that would account for the number of things that astrologers say that astrology can do or is capable of telling you about your life, but instead it becomes uh, sort of an explanation about how the movements of the planets and, and the stars could symbolically and sort of instantaneously be relevant in, in some way in terms of depicting and, and describing and being useful uh, in order to talk about what's happening on Earth or what's happening in a person's psyche. Yeah, yeah, that's so you know well summarized. I. I think, yeah, it does. It's it moves beyond the causal explanation in presenting this idea that there's some kind of deeper connection between the cosmos and the psyche that is is 
pre-given. It's a priori. It's, it's uh, the nature of our reality is such that there is this symbolic correspondence between the heavens and the depths of the psyche. Um, you know, I'm quite fond of um, there's a, a line from Joseph Campbell, uh, our depths are the depths of space. I use that in, to, to open one of the chapters in the archetypal cosmos or um, you know, the seat of the soul is there where the inner world and the outer world meet is another quote that I use. I think a lot of a lot of thinkers, certainly the thinkers that I've referenced, seem to be um, have identified something like this correspondence that rests on a an underlying unity to reality, unity that we've lost because we we exist in our uh, often um, Cartesian world within our separate egos, our scientifically trained um, view of reality, and this view in many ways um, contradicts that and requires a different kind of worldview and, and perception of, of just what reality is. Right. And that's so crucial because of, as we said at the beginning of the show, somebody coming in from outside of the astrological community could hear of the concept of astrology and then just immediately reject ever exploring it on the basis of saying that's not possible within the context of any sort of current scientific thinking in terms of you know gravity not being strong enough or the other forces also being too weak to exert that, that sort of action at a distance and this um you know is an explanatory you know it's sort of the answer of the astrological community or the attempt to articulate the answer that the astrologers have had for thousands of years in terms of of how astrology is working and why it can work which is introducing a completely different uh, sort of property to the universe that otherwise hasn't been articulated up to this point, but is almost necessary in order to understand how astrology can do what it do and, and what it does. And once you understand it, can then um, sort of explain how some techniques could even be viable or why you would be able to look symbolically at certain things that otherwise are just apparent phenomena, like even like Mercury retrograde or something like that, which is not it's it's an apparent phenomenon from our standpoint mm -hmm. or vantage point here on earth it's not that mercury is actually moving backwards uh in the solar system at those point in time points in time but instead it's just an apparent phenomenon and why that could still be let's say symbolically relevant yeah yeah i think that's right um you know i think the whole idea or the whole project of trying to uh address the theoretical basis of astrology is one important element if astrology is to uh, achieve greater recognition and acceptance which you know i think we hope we hope it will because it's uh, for too long i think been on the on the outside of the paradigmatic boundaries of uh, academic discourse and and um, issued by science and so forth in i think you know if there is a more plausible explanation theoretically of astrology and that can be presented alongside empirical evidence of the kind uh, Rictanus uh, as presented in Cosmos and Psyche and other studies um, by other astrologers and, and in the archive journal, I think then you, you can start to build a more compelling case. Clearly, you know, there are some people who are not going to be persuaded, but I think, you know, for those people who are seeking deeper meaning in life, um, I think astrology caters to that, to bring this back to the idea of individuation and the self, um, you know, key part of that, as, as I mentioned, is key part of individuation is tapping into how does my life fit into the larger scheme of cosmic meaning, and in, and how do I live in a way that's 
aligned with what the self, um, the Tao, wants me to do. And I think astrology, along with synchronicity and along with uh, other other practices such as dream studies, can be a really valuable help in in that endeavor. So I think you know it's uh, it's important today when many people have lost or have, are not persuaded by traditional religions. Uh, you know, in many ways, we live in a, a post-Christian era in the West, and people are searching for spiritual meaning and, and guidance and orientation, existential orientation. And where are they going to go for that if the only narrative is kind of secular consumerist society and material science and so forth? That doesn't really cater to the, uh, the, the needs of the soul. And so I think um, something like astrology, synchronicity, and, and other practices can be really helpful for people who are trying to find their own way uh, and no longer held and guided by a traditional myth or religious framework, but trying to find their own way to individuate. And yet here's a means using astrology to, to understand, you know, how, how am I rela- directly related to the archetypes? And it's uh, astrology is a kind of um, map or portrait of what the archetypes are doing at particular moments. So I think therein lies its, uh, its value. Sure, and because it fundamentally posits that meaning is not just uh, subjective and internal, but meaning meaning may actually exist externally in the cosmos itself, and be relating back to the cosmos might be relating back to individual lives and and reflecting some sense of meaning in this in this weird way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, brilliant. Well, uh, yeah, I think that might be a good stopping point here. So there's a whole other direction where, where at some point, I hope we can we can follow up on this and do a follow up discussion, which is how you've tried to incorporate some of Jung's theories of synchronicity and uh, incorporate them into the thinking of other sort of um, modern or contemporary philosophers and scholars who have been working in other fields and in, in other areas in order to create a sort of holistic uh, explanation or, or ex- explanation in some way for how astrology works and what the cosmos, what the nature of the cosmos is, if this is a legitimate phenomenon. And that's really the subject of the, the past few books that you've written, right? Uh, well, the first book, especially uh, The Archetypal Cosmos, uh, I've written two books on astrology that The Archetypal Cosmos is a, uh, well, it, it emerged from my dissertation and my dissertation the subtitle was um a theoretical synthesis of Jungian psychology and the new paradigm sciences so i draw on the ideas of people such as uh, a physicist david bohm and fritjof capra um uh, rupert sheldrake who's uh, a biologist who's developed a theory of what he calls um, morphic resonance formative causation um, I reference Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, the famous uh, Jesuit paleontologist in the 1950s who wrote a lot on evolution um, in, in relation to Christianity. And then the work of Brian Swim, contemporary cosmologist, and uh, Rick Tarnas, of course, uh, as well as Jung. So, yeah, it's uh, a, an attempt to synthesize many uh, what seem to me to be compatible ideas in the hope of trying to articulate a, a more coherent worldview in which astrology makes more sense. So yeah, I'd, be, I'd love to come back and talk about that some other time. Brilliant. And, and we, we were also talking before we started recording about um, your other book, where, which is titled Discovering Eris, which was not just on 
the recent discovery of that planet and the the attempt on a, the part of astrologers and yourself to determine what it means astrologically, but also you said that you did sort of like a meta review and tried to outline a specific approach for articulate an approach for how astrologers derive meaning from planetary bodies and and newly discovered planetary bodies, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is relevant to uh, an understanding of of synchronicity and synchronicity's place in astrology, because many uh, many astrologers, have, I think, have made reference to the the fact that uh, historical events seem to uh, mirror the nature of the planet at the time it was discovered. I.e., you know, uh, the French Revolution occurring alongside the discovery of Uranus, and Uranus being thematically connected to revolution. That that kind of idea. So yeah, I mean, I began this the Eris book in. 2007 um it was originally a term paper and then it it, it grew uh, inordinately large so it became a, a monograph um but yeah so i you know i was curious to try to understand what eris might mean and to do that i thought well let's let's look at the ways that uh, astrologers have discovered the meanings of other planets and what are the principles we can use you know like looking at the myth involving uh, Pluto, for example, or Prometheus myth with Uranus, and you know Neptune as Poseidon, ruler of the seas, and so forth. Uh, so that's one approach. Another one was to look at historical synchronicities, as I just mentioned. So I looked at what what you know, what, what was happening around 2006 over a span of I don't know ten years, something like that, to see if I could discern anything that was unique archetypally to that moment in history that might have a connection to Eris. So I think in the end, I identified six principles. Um, so yeah, I, I'd happily uh, come back to talk about that, that book as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I think both of those would be great follow-up discussions to have since they're very much tied into synchronicity and its application to modern astrology, both uh, in a theoretical context in terms of figuring out what it what its implications are, how it explains astrology and what its implications for the cosmos are, but also in a practical sense how astrology how astrologers actually work with uh, synchronicity and use its uh, application in astrology in order to do things practically like you know study and develop uh, an understanding of what certain planets mean yeah yeah cool well all right well thanks a lot for for joining me today i really thought this i thought this went really well and i think um we covered all of the main points that i wanted to touch on in terms of synchronicity is there anything else that you wanted to mention uh, about that or about the book young on astrology before we wrap up today um no um um obviously um you know you've you've heard me speak about it but it's better i think to to read young directly that was the the hope when saffron and i began work on the book that we wanted to give young chance to, to speak for himself so you know i encourage you if you have interest in this area to to uh, read young um for yourselves and you know i've given <laughs> something of my interpretation of Jung here. So it might be that in, in returning to Jung, you see a different angle. Um, so I think that's why it's important to, uh, to, to, to go to the primary source here if you can. So no, that's everything. And thank you, Chris, for your, your wonderful questions and commentary. It's been uh, really a pleasure to be on the show. And I do hope I can return one day to talk about uh, another topic. Definitely. Well, well, thank you for for authoring this book. I mean, I think this was a, a landmark book, and I'm glad that you did it because it was much needed. Because, like you said, there wasn't any collection of just all of Young's writings and thoughts on astrology until this. And I, I think it'll make a big difference going forward in terms of people being able to 
access that and read his writings for themselves and then develop their own thoughts on it um, in addition to your really useful commentary and, and everything in the process. So yeah, so thanks a lot for for joining me today. Thank you. All the best. All right. And thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.